this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. On one hand, the king stood outside his tent, staring into the night fire. What does he see there? Victory? Doom? The face of his red and hungry god? His eyes were sunk in deep pits, his close-cropped beard no more than a shadow across his hollow cheeks and bony jawbone. Yet there was a power in his stare, an iron ferocity that told Asha this man would never, ever turn back from his course. But on the other... White Harbor might prove troublesome should Lord Wyman survive this coming battle, but I am quite sure that he will not. No more than Stannis. Roos will remove both of them, as he removed the young wolf. Who are we to believe? Though there are a variety of ways the Battle of Ice could play out, there's only two possible basic results. A Bolton Frey victory or a Stannis victory. Given that, we only have two paths to chart out, and we'll be following them as far as we can reasonably, or unreasonably, go. Uh, of particular importance will be the effect of the battle on the northern political outlook, the series itself, and what it will mean for a host of different characters. We always love to pay attention to the individual characters, of course. We'll also discuss how a possible battle at Winterfell itself might play out, because things are really pointing that direction. Now, uh, welcome again to another episode of the History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire book series, as well as HBO's Game of Thrones. You'll notice that I do not have Ashea with me today. She is out sick. Uh, one of the small problems with doing a live recording is we have less fixability to change something once we've set it. So uh, normally we would reschedule until she is feeling well, but we have a tight schedule to keep. We have World of Vice and Fire coming up soon. Uh, for those of you watching video, oh look, we've got our copy already. <laughs> and we have a lot to talk about with that book. So we do not want to waste any more time. We want to wrap this Battle of Ice up. We're having a lot of fun with it. But as soon as the book comes out uh, on Tuesday, I'm sure a lot of you are going to be, your minds are going to be shifted towards the topics in that book, and uh, we're going to want to be talking about those things. We can't wait to do that, but we also can't wait to do this Stannis Roos action here. So I want to reintroduce Jeff Hartline of Wars and Politics uh, blog of Song of Ice and Fire, and I hope a lot of you guys have checked his, his stuff out since then. We've done, uh, this is our third episode with him, so you guys have had time. If you haven't, get on that. Jeff, say hello. Hey guys, thanks for having me back. It's, uh, we had a, did a ton of preparation for this one. It was about two months or so worth of work. <laughs> yeah. It's, I've, I've noticed the last one often is the, the hardest one. <laughs> it, it really was the hardest one because we kind of are delving into territory beyond um, what you know, the Theon sample chapter uh, from the Winds of Winter has for us and what A Dance with Dragons uh, might, might pertain. But this, is, this, this was, a, was a lot of fun to make. And really, I can't really listen to you guys do your The World of Ice and Fire and I'm really jealous. Can I see that book one more time? <laughs> Here it is. Yeah, some of you, some of you guys may be aware that it was sold early at some targets, some target targets around. I guess in the U.S. I'm not sure if it was happening in other countries. They just started selling it early, 
Um, and we, so we've had time to take a look at it and, and get the, hit the ground running get a few things prepared and at least, uh, you know, uh, get our feet wet and have our initial thoughts. So, uh, with that in mind, that will be our next episode and it will be very soon. It'll be this coming week. Uh, it will be less prepared and scripted than our normal episodes are because it's just going to be our initial thoughts. We're just going to kind of wet the appetites and, uh, kind of take our first look and get initial impressions and do all that. It's kind of get an idea of which topics you guys are most interested in. We put up a few uh, talks and, and posts on Facebook and Twitter asking what you guys are most interested in. And uh, there's a there's a variety of things that you guys want to see. But there are a few things that are more popular than others that we'll, we'll probably start with some of those. But hey, once you guys see the book, your, your ideas might change on what you're most interested in. So we'll just have to see how that goes. I also want to uh, thanks again to uh, Brand Vross and his uh, wonderful Winterfell Hui Klo uh, blog, for lack of a better word. I guess it's not really a blog, but uh, Jeff, you, you, you noted that to me while we were discussing this the other day that Brand Vross has written almost as much as Game of Thrones itself, the first book. Yeah, I think uh, I've been chatting with a yoke boy from Radio Westeros, and he was saying that... Um, They've calculated out how many words that Brown Ross has used, and it's about the same length as the first book of this series, A Game of Thrones. So, <laughs> well done, Brian. <laughs> yeah, that's, good job, you. That's some, um, that's some good work, and that's some that's some that's the uh, that's doing God's work right there. <laughs> Relor, that that's the God I'm referring to. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. So, uh, we'd like to, of course, thank our supporters. Um, I've got some news with regards to how to support the show coming forward. We're still looking at some of these great. Uh, sites. Patreon is one of them, and some of the other names are escaping me at the moment. I didn't write them down. But what they do is they provide a great way to manage content for sites like ours who aren't, you know, we're not some sort of mega media conglomerate or something, so we don't have like a, our own website with, oh, we do have our own website. I, what I mean is we don't have a website that's, you know, cost a couple hundred thousand dollars to develop with, uh, you know, all these fancy bells and whistles. So, but there are sites out there that can do that kind of stuff for you. And we're thinking of, we're, we're likely to sign up with one of those soon. And what that will do is give a much better experience for supporting the show and give a better idea of what's going to happen. Um, it kind of ties things together. You can, you can donate per episode rather than per month or per et cetera. So it's a lot smoother. There's a couple of things I don't like about it, but I think it's going to be a good user experience. So we're going to be making some announcements with that soon. In the meantime, uh, big thanks to the following supporters. Uh, Anne, Anne Sweet from France. Dan Kay, of course. He's been mentioned several times as a supporter. Blake G from, uh, is a recurring supporter as well. We also have Navreet from British Columbia. James Smith, another recurring uh, donator as well. And James Tuttle. We also have Itai from New York, a very nice donation there. We also have uh, Ultima slash Yu Yvonne from uh, Statesboro. That's kind of near us. We're in Atlanta, Georgia. Statesboro, Georgia is not too far. Uh, Chris R. from San Francisco. Barone H. from Florida. Uh, Sir Grant of House Boland from Quebec. We also have Victoria J. from Portland. Harry B. from South Carolina. Uh, Michael G. from Ventura, California. Joseph I. from New Jersey. And uh, Thomas T. from Orlando, twice, he gave us uh, another hit right before this episode, just in time to get mentioned on here. So, uh, thanks very much to you all who have supported us. It's definitely, uh, we, didn't, we didn't get this episode out as fast as we wanted to, but that's, you know, as Jeff was saying, that's kind of the nature of the beast. 
these these wrap up episodes, these culminations of long of long several part episodes. We really don't want to make sure we missed anything. It's our last chance to talk about everything, so we just really like go over things with a fine tooth comb and say, "All right, did we get it all? Did we get it all? Is there any angle we missed? Is there something we didn't catch?" A lot of times there is, and we go back. We have to add things, and, and the only the only way to make sure we've got it all sometimes is to sit on it for a day or two to think about it and come back fresh and, and take a second look. Another way to support the show is with our Amazon links. We've got those up on our website, of course, www.historyofwesteros.com. And you can click on any of the links, and any shopping you do, regardless of whether it's the first item you click on or not, will track back to us. It will not cost you any extra. So, of course, with Christmas coming up, of course, I, I, sh- I should be scolding myself for mentioning Christmas when it's only October. I hate when that happens. So, pretend I didn't say that. But anyway... Amazon's a good way to support the show. It doesn't cost you any extra. Anything you would have bought on Amazon, it's the same price. Um, Lands of Ice and Fire, great book. But of course, you want to be getting this World of Ice and Fire book because we're going to be talking about it a lot and uh, you don't want to be left behind when we bring up these topics and you have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, So I've already mentioned this World of Ice and Fire episode we're going to do this week. Uh, But we also want to mention that we're going to start doing Q&A episodes. I've been talking about that for a while. And I'm kind of figuring out how we want to do that, whether we want to do it a once a month kind of deal or a little more infrequently. It's kind of something we're figuring out in the background. And we, we think we're going, to have, we're going to have a Q&A episode that's at least partly dedicated to this Battle of Ice stuff. We even considered having it at the end of this episode. But, of course, what ends up happening is we just wrote so much material that we're going to eat up the whole two hours with, with our own talking. We don't have time for questions. So questions that you do have... Uh, save those, send them to us, an email if you want. Um, we'll end up putting them on the show. We'll announce your name as well, like we do uh, kind of along the lines of the donation shout-outs. We'll say your name, say your question. Other people out there, will, a lot of people will have the same questions that you have. Uh, so that's the value of answering the questions live, is other people get to hear the answers. Some of you have sent us letters, have emailed us, and we haven't responded. A lot of those contain questions. We apologize for not getting back to you if you've written to us and haven't gotten an answer, but we haven't forgotten about you. We're saving your questions for the Q&A episodes. Uh, it also is a more efficient use of our time. Rather than just responding individually, we'll, we'll make it into an episode. Everyone gets to hear the answers. And it's just everyone wins that way. Yeah, and, I, you know, if, if you guys end up doing one for the Battle of Ice, I'd be happy to come back anytime you your fans Excellent. might want to do one for the Q&A. So that'd be a lot of yeah, fun. Yeah, definitely. We, uh, the Q&A episodes, I'm pretty excited about the whole concept. I think that that'll be a lot of fun. This... Uh, app that we're using here, the Google Plus Hangout app that we're using to record, is provides some features, actually, uh, that allow people to comment at certain timestamps, kind of along the lines of SoundCloud, which we're on, by the way, these days. Uh, check us out on SoundCloud if you haven't already. So we're going to fool with that a little bit more and learn a little bit, a little bit more about how it works. But it gives us some pretty good tools for people can just, you know, type their questions into the live recording and we'll see it and we can answer it, you know, on the fly. Uh, which is kind of cool because I'm sure some people will, will want to try to stump us with tough questions, and we'll see if we can see if we're up to it. Um, I think we will be, but I'm sure there's a few questions we won't be able to answer. <laughs> and in that case, we'll just have to come back in the future Q and A and uh, delay the answer. But we'll always uh, we'll always get there. Anyway, enough uh, enough preamble. Let's get going with the Battle of Ice Part Three, the exciting conclusion, where we have a lot of speculation and a lot more textual analysis combined. And I have cats walking around here. We have some new cats that we've adopted here. And they are five-month-old kittens, and they are getting all over the place. So you may see them walk past the, uh, the, the camera here. Make sure to wave. Now, I think a lot of people suspect Stannis won't last the series. 
but losing to the phrase in the midst of a snowstorm isn't exactly a popular guess for how he'll go out. The feedback we've gotten from parts one and parts two of this series definitely back that up. Uh, very few people uh, expect Stannis to lose to the phrase, but we have to admit it's a possibility. So most of us expect Stannis to win the Battle of Ice and for his end to come in some other way or maybe not at all. Uh, only a few people seem to be predicting Stannis to sit the Iron Throne by the end of the series, but it does remain possible. Other possibilities range from villainy to heroism. Stannis could end up... The biggest crackpot theory I've seen that's, that's worth mentioning is that he becomes the new Night's King. Uh, or perhaps he ends up as the new Lord's Commander of the Night's Watch, uh, leading a reformed and regrouped Night's Watch at the conclusion Manning the wall in force again, if there is even a wall to man. But uh, that's not really a directly related topic to Stannis winning the Battle of Ice. So, uh, so we're gonna we're gonna move on, and uh, we'll see what we can do here. Yeah, I think this this episode will have a Stannis wins bias in terms of how we spend our time. We expect Stannis to win, so kind of you know we're coming at from a biased perspective than you know perhaps just a straight up historical perspective. But who are we to assume for sure that Stannis will win? It's not like he's undefeated. He did lose the Battle of the Blackwater. Uh, George R. R. Martin has surprised us many times, and this could be another possibility there. We might be surprised by this. We did, after all, just admit that we don't necessarily expect Stannis to survive the series. Are we really going to quibble over how it happens? If we flesh out a Bolton victory and what it looks like um, in terms of how it affects the story, it might help us get an inkling of which is more likely. Perhaps it's wrong to be so sure of a Stannis victory, and going through all the detail could change our minds. Well, probably not, but it could. And no matter how well we analyze, I'm sure we're in for many surprises in the Winds of Winter. And no matter of our accuracy of our predictions, um, the material is a lot of fun to play with. And uh, we think we're going to have a lot of fun doing this. And that's why we're here, to have fun. Of course, yeah. This is always about, A Song of Ice and Fire is always about having fun. That's, that's a thing that I just a brief digression we have we have of course our own forums that we have some great discussions on uh welcome people to come in and join that and one thing that always confuses me about people having game of thrones discussions whether it's on our forums whether on any other forums is people sometimes get mad about other people's ideas and i don't get that the whole point is to have fun if someone's idea no matter how crackpot or silly it is if they're having fun with it I'm not going to ruin their fun by telling them their ideas is silly, even if I think it is. <laughs> so anyway, you know, even if it's an idea that you don't agree with, you know, it's it's a fun. It's it's it adds to the series because people can look at an event from a completely different perspective than what we're used to. But um, it might add a new angle and that really solidifies things. You know, that we there's a number of theories because I mean I read theories as kind of a hobby of mine that I really enjoy reading, um, but I don't necessarily agree with their conclusions. Uh, Bron Vross being one of the people that whose stuff I read fairly religiously, but I, I don't necessarily agree with all his conclusions, but I love all of the, uh, the groundwork he takes to get to those conclusions. Right, so that just goes to show you don't have to agree with the conclusions to appreciate the process and to see the detail laid out. You may reach your own conclusions based on, if, if a person does a great job of laying out the detail and the material, you may reach your own conclusions that you may not have reached without them doing that legwork for you, even if you completely disagree with, with their own version of their own interpretation. So, uh, but we try to do here at History of Westeros is we try to cover as many bases as possible, things that we don't necessarily agree with, but we think some of you guys might agree with, and we think it's fun to at least mention. So that's kind of our style. That's why our episodes are so long. <laughs> so picture this. You're reading The Winds of Winter, 
and you've been waiting on it for a while. You're obviously excited to read it like we are. Perhaps you've forgotten all sense of time because you're reading this book that you've been waiting for for so long and you're not aware of what's happening around you. Maybe your house is burning down and you don't even notice it. Uh, you're having a hard time putting it down. I'm sure that will be the case for a lot of us. You'll be, you know, oh, I got to be at work in five hours. It's, it's, it's four in the morning, but I'll just read one more chapter. That sound, I'm sure a lot of us will be uh, wrestling with that decision. Now, think about this, though. In that first sitting, and you're only a few chapters in, imagine that Stannis is dead. For real, not one of those dies off screen kind of situations, no ruse, no, uh, like he's really gone. We've seen the body, in other words. This is no Sandor is the gravedigger. This is no Arya, his axe took her in the back of the head type situation. There's no, is he dead? Is he alive? We're sure he's dead. Let's just pretend that. No, no, uh, no Tyrion or Davos almost drowning and not being sure. None of that. We're sure. <laughs> so, dead Stannis, for real. You are all going to think about this a lot while, while listening today. We're going to really put, try to put you in that frame of mind. Yeah, when we wrote this episode, we, kind of, we deeply considered how Stannis might possibly die, um, despite believing that we think that Stannis is going to win. Um, we imagined what it would be like to read about Stannis' death as a reader. Personally, I would be devastated. Um, but setting that aside for what it means for the plot for the series, I think it's important to see and to kind of do a little bit of analysis on the means that Stannis, how Stannis might lose the Battle of Ice. It might seem kind of odd to think about it that way. I mean, we, we, we can't really imagine how we'll feel after all things will, other things will happen in the book, let alone in real life. Who knows when the book will come out? Who knows what's going to be going on in your own personal life at the time or in ours or whatever. Perhaps we've already had a Danny chapter where we resolve this Call Jaco Drogon cliffhanger and the next chapter is Stannis in the Battle of Ice and your head is still spinning from the way you just read in the previous chapter. It's really hard to predict how we're going to feel about this new material, but we can still get a semblance of our thoughts. Still, the idea of Stannis being dead is pretty shocking. Uh, maybe we have this John chapter where we resolve the is John dead chapter, or question rather. So there's a lot of things that to keep in mind as to when we're going to read this new material. Uh, so that's, that's, it's hard to put yourself in that space exactly. But even if you personally don't have a thought for how you'll feel when this happens or if this happens, I'll tell you who does. George R. R. Martin himself. A great author considers the impact of a character death, not just in terms of plot, but in terms of the reader's emotional strings and the best ways to pull them. George didn't randomly start the Red Wedding chapter with those ominous drums. In fact, a lot of you know this. This is good trivia. The last chapter he wrote in A Storm of Swords was the Red Wedding, partly because his own emotions were, uh, you know, getting to him. He, he didn't want to... The process of killing off his own characters is actually difficult for him. He's, he's talked about that. Uh, and he, if you reread that chapter, you know what I'm talking about, the ominous drums at the beginning. And even if you haven't, you still probably agree with my general point that George knows what he's doing. <laughs> Right. And so the question would come up, what are we aiming for here? Why would George R. R. Martin kill Stannis? It's not really a huge trick, um, and it's not really that complicated either. I think it would just be flat out shocking, right? I say that kind of um, knowing that I've spent a lot of time thinking about Stannis. You know, I wrote a whole analysis on Stannis as a military commander. Um, and I would be, like I said before, shocked if I read it. Stannis listening to the phrase is pretty hard to swallow, all things considered. So, yeah, my personally, that's that's I'm pretty I feel similar to you, Jeff. I think if, if I read that, even though we've talked about all this, you know, we set all this up, I would still be shocked because I just don't oh, yeah, see it definitely. coming. We've, we've, we put this out as a possibility, but it's not one that I strongly endorse. <laughs> so uh, it's fun to talk about. But wow. Yeah. If he's just dead in the snow there, killed by the phrase, I would be like, damn. 
<laughs> yeah, no, I think it would be similar for me. That I would just feel that Stannis dying just removes a lot of potential from the story of a character. Yeah. At least from my perspective. Obviously, George R. R. Martin has his endgame in mind way in advance in the 90s. You know, I'm only picking up in the 2000s. But, um, you know, it's really interesting to me to consider that they would kill off a, a character who we've... You know, we, we I, I remember just hearing about him in A Game of Thrones and then um, hearing how ferocious he is and how cold he is. And then in Clash of Kings, you see him. And then A Storm of Swords, he kind of redeems himself a little bit. And then in A Dance with Dragons, he's kind of... I'm not going to say he comes out as the exact hero of, of the North and A Dance with Dragons, but he has a number of heroic characteristics, as well as a few unheroic ones as well. It would just be... Um, definitely a big shock if Stannis ends up getting uh, offed by by Martin come the winds of winter. Yeah, so I, I guess after that shock wears off, I'd probably put the book down for a minute uh, just to think about it and maybe try to recall this episode and think, whoa, what did we have in mind for Stannis dying? Actually, this is more important than we thought. Uh, but then we start. you start thinking. I don't know about you guys, but when I read new material, whether it's The World of Ice and Fire or it's the next book in the series... I read as a fan first and as an analyst second, so I'm not necessarily looking for clues and thinking, you know, like, oh, what am I, I got to catch these subtle hints here and there. I'm just taking it all in. I know I'm going to read it again. I know I'm going to look at it in depth. I don't need to have my detective hat on right away. Uh, So this is where we really start to consider the angles. And if we're good enough at it, we'll have a better idea of what's happening when we we read The Winds of Winter. You want to be prepared for these things so that all these details don't get out of control. Your head will still spin, no doubt. But you'll be ready to consider the ramifications when they happen. Just like our good friend Sir Justin Massey certainly has. The knight hesitated. Your grace, if you are dead, you will avenge my death and seat my daughter on the Iron Throne or die in the attempt. So let's talk about the aftermath of a Bolton victory first. We'll get to the more what we think is more likely the Stannis victory a bit later. The Bolton victory actually is pretty fun to play with. There's a lot of interesting things that would happen. It's a lot of things that I wouldn't have thought about. It's a deep rabbit hole to go into. And once you're in there, you find these kind of neat things that we wouldn't have expected. So for starters, some of the basics, Stannis's army is probably just destroyed. Uh, he had his best men there. So that's very bad <laughs> for Stannis. Maybe someone of competence survived, but it's not so likely And it certainly doesn't matter that much just if a couple of his commanders survive if Stannis himself doesn't. I remember that the Frey forces are far more mobile. Stannis has so few horses, something we talked about in depth before. So if if the Freys do win, the stragglers from Stannis' side, the survivors, they're probably going to get run down. They probably get caught. Yeah, we're going to need Justin Massey to be exceptionally loyal to the Baratheon cause um, to be to have any glimmer of hope for Queen um, Shireen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she would be next in line. She'd be the last Baratheon, huh? She's an interesting, interesting subtopic in this rabbit hole, actually, uh, when we think a lot about dead Stannis. One thing I'll say is almost certain, um, perhaps not the most uh, groundbreaking piece of analysis, but I think it's pretty funny. In a land where distinguishing features define a person so much, Queen Shireen would be showered with nicknames. <laughs> the list of inspiring features is so long. She's a shy young rebel queen, allegedly fathered by Patchface, disfigured by Grayscale, apparently naturally homely as well. Might as well call her the moniker queen or queen of a thousand names. Yeah, you know, Roos, as we point out, is not a dummy in any sense of the word. He knows Princess at the time Shireen is out there. 
and that she would be the only Baratheon left to inherit the throne. Um, that's not a loose end that Roose Bolton is likely to leave dangling for uh, Come the Winds of Winter. He has reason enough to deal with her, and that's without knowing about Tycho Nestoris. He's aware that Sir Justin is... Su- excuse me, he's unaware that Sir Justin is soon to be off hiring swords, and he's probably also unaware that Stannis has the Iron Bank behind him. If he knew this, or he found out somehow, it would make become it would become even more important. But it's big either way. Now, Roos puts... Uh, or rather wants quite a bit of what's detailed in the pink letter himself, actually. Mostly Shireen, uh, but also Solis and probably Melisandre. Definitely fake Arya. More on her later, though. And to be clear, by wants, we mean wants dead. Roos wants those people dead. He might want to torture them first. Who knows what, what he, you know, how he wants to go about it. But he wants them in hand, in control, and out of the picture. Yeah, thinking beyond Shireen, the Great Queen, a dead Stannis would mean quite a few other things. Um, some immediate thoughts. Apart from Stannis himself, we probably bid goodbye to some of our favorite characters from A Dance of Dragons, our favorite minor characters at least. A Big Bucket Wool and Morgan Little would have to go by the wayside, unfortunately. Yeah, and we probably wouldn't miss uh, Sir Godry the Giant Slayer too much, uh, nor Sir Clayton Suggs. I don't know. I kind of, I kind of be sad if Sir Richard Horp ended up dying <laughs> because I think anyone who pisses off Cersei Lancer has a degree of, of my sympathy. That's a good point. It pisses her off enough that she tells Robert not to Nate, give him a white cloak. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's, that's really saying something, isn't it? If, if, if you've uh, disturbed Cersei. <laughs> uh, and, and of course, also, we would, we would miss the opportunity, if it happens, for Tormund to get revenge for, because uh, remember, Sir Richard is the one who killed one of Tormund's sons. Uh, I don't know if George would give us such a piece of revenge, so that might be too clean. But we would at least like the opportunity to remain, right? <laughs> now, uh, not everyone on the losing side will die, however. Some will be taken captive, such as Theon. Again, Mr. Traded Captive. He's uh, he's like just passed around like a... I don't know what. I don't have an analogy ready. <laughs> Maybe people, uh, or rather many people, believe that Stannis will burn Theon soon or execute him at the heart tree, as Asha ominously suggests. But Stannis has already given his thoughts on the matter, and we know he doesn't change his mind often, if at all. No, he does He does sometimes. Yeah, here's the quote. The king indicated to Theon, him, Wool wants him dead. Flint, Nori, all of them want him dead. For the boys he slew, vengeance for their precious Ned. Will you oblige them? Just now the turncloak is more used to me alive. He has knowledge we may need. So a best guess... Stannis wants Theon for the same reason he thought the Spearwives had Mance slash Abel come for him. Quote, he wants to know how I took the castle, but not to make a song of it. The answer came to him. He wants to know how we got in so he can get out. So there's a good chance that Theon's going to live a little bit longer. But Stannis did say just now and flat out tells Asha that, quote, your brothers must die. So surely he intends to execute him eventually. Surely this is a vastly this is vastly preferable to even to Theon himself when compared to recapture by Ramsay. I mean, if we thought Theon's torment was brutal before, what he'd face from Ramsay after escaping with fake Arya is is nigh unspeakable. Theon himself thinks death was the sweetest deliverance he could hope for. So Theon's fate is uncertain, but perhaps we can speak about Asha more easily. She seems like a valuable hostage, and we might think that the phrase in Ramsey might want to take her back to Winterfell and potentially, possibly not harm her. Well, I guess we shouldn't be too sure of what Roos and Ramsey would do with any female captive, but Roos is more likely to claim her and not just let Ramsey have her, so Ramsey wouldn't have 
too much opportunity to just get psycho on her. But kind of taking it like a little bit of a step further, Roos might even claim, may even claim Theon now that his usefulness has changed. Um, consider that his advice he gives King Rob is now applicable to Roos's own situation. Whoever wins this the, the Sea Stone Chair will want Theon Greyjoy dead. Bolton pointed out, even in chains, he has a better claim than any of his uncles. Hold him, I say, and demand concessions from the Ironborn as the price of his execution. Rob considered that reluctantly, but in the end, he nodded. Sir Justin, looking ahead, points out, quote, One day your grace will need to take the Iron Islands. That will go much easier with Balon Greyjoy's daughter as a cat's ball. In this scenario, Bolton could take Theon and Asha, and Euron might want Theon dead, although he's the type that might just shrug, thinking that the threat is beneath him. Uh, this is basically how Asha sees it. She doesn't think that Euron will care, and she knows him better than anyone else giving an opinion, thinking... Her worth as a hostage was less than not. Her uncle ruled the Iron Islands now, and the Crow's Eye would not care if she lived or died. So things look pretty god-awful for Asha if Roos and Ramsay capture her, um, especially if they agree if she's relatively worthless. Yeah, I guess in a, in a way it looks pretty awful in any case to be captured by those two. <laughs> yeah, no, it totally does. And we've already seen that Roos is willing to take Theon from Ramsay, so if he does have any value at all... Um, there would be, there could be hope for, for Theon avoiding unthinkable torment instead of kind of his old regular uh, thinkable torment, I guess. <laughs> Taking him? Where? You cannot take him. Uh, Roos seemed amused by that. All you have I gave you. You would do well to remember that, bastard. As for this, Reek, if you have not ruined him beyond redemption, he may be of some use to us. Get the keys and remove these chains from him before you make the day I before you make me rue the day I raped your mother. Well, that's just a lovely line, isn't it? Reek saw the way Ra uh, Ramsay's mouth twisted, the spittle glistening between his lips. He feared he might leap the table with his dagger in hand. Instead, he flushed red, turned his pale eyes from his father's paler ones, and went to find the keys. Yeah, you never want to underestimate the power of the father has over the son, especially. Um, the father being Bruce Bolton and the son being Ramsay, someone who has spent his entire life trying to prove himself worthy in a world that despises bastards. Of course, in this case, the father also has, you know, the huge army. So we don't actually need these psychological evaluations to understand the power dynamics, but they're fun and they will play a role in other ways and in general throughout the series. But additionally, along with Asha and Theon, we must not also forget their fellow Ironborn, Carl the Maid, Triss Botley are all at, at uh, the Crofter's Village. They're another interesting mini-topic. They were initially captured with Asha at Deepwood Mott, and they were ransomed by the Iron Banker, Tycho Nestoris, who was traipsing all over the unfamiliar north in search of Stannis. Right. Now, as Iron Islanders, they themselves are foreigners, too. So, in a sense, not as much as Tycho is, but still. They're not familiar with the north. That's the point. They, so Tycho clearly hired them as escorts, as protection, not as guides. They don't know their way around that area any better than he does for the most part. So you'd think they'd be bound to see Tycho back safely so he can presumably return to Bravos with these two major new contracts, Stannis and the Wall, respectively. But the question kind of crops up, who would have besotted Christopher leave Asha? Would Carl, who, who would actually leave Asha? Would Christopher leave her or would Carl, her lover... I think at least two of those things would be possible. Two of them would be possible to stay and be want to be near her. Yeah, they and only they are with her when she comes to Stannis. 
uh, to, to, to be, you know, kind of grilled by him. <laughs> it's kind of an exciting, it's kind of an exciting possibility is that they'll, t- they'll take advantage of the confusion, meaning the battle itself to free Asha, maybe even Theon and try to escape. Yeah. Uh, it's, that's a, something that I really hadn't considered much until we really started to think down this rabbit hole. It's kind of an interesting possibility, kind of on either side. It doesn't, this, this, we suggested this, we're talking about this during the, if Bolton wins portion of this episode, but really this could happen in either case. It's just a little, maybe a little more likely and maybe a little more important <laughs> to get away if, if uh, a Bolton victory comes. Now, uh, if you guys remember the she-bear, Alisanne Mormont, who even Sir Clayton Suggs is a little wary of, um, she's no longer guarding Asha. She went north with Justin Massey, so... She's not around, so that might make it even easier for her to be rescued. It's not like Stannis is going to leave his best men guarding a prisoner when there's a do-or-die battle to be fought. He himself points out, the village lacks a dungeon, and I have more prisoners than I anticipated when we halted here. The problem doesn't seem to be getting away and finding refuge, um, not that the actual getting freed, um, excuse me, not the actual getting freeing Ashapart. Fleeing into the snow might be a little bit too desperate, for example, this is what happens when she simply leaves the feast tent. And here's a quote from A Dance with Dragons. Quote, she was lost before she had gone 10 yards. But that doesn't mean it won't happen. Just because something looks really difficult or even desperate, consider the, uh, consider the alternative. Dying in the snow might actually be preferable to capture by the Boltons. But while Asha is considering her own fate, the effect of a Stannis loss extends all over the north, including the Wall. The conflict with the Night's Watch now can take center stage as Roos and especially Ramsay want, remember what want means here, want things that they have. Here's where we point out that in the scenario of a dead Stannis, the pink letter is now light, very likely authored by Ramsay and probably very accurate as well, unfortunately. Though it would be amazing for Mance to yeah. have the letter without knowing the result of the battle, would it be a, a lucky guess or maybe a calculated estimate perhaps? Well, regardless... Uh, Ramsey could march on the wall to get back Arya, though we mustn't forget he doesn't really have an army. Though, considering these goals do line up with Roos's as well, uh, Roos will probably give him some men, maybe the extra phrase, because in this scenario, again, the phrase have survived the battle, perhaps most or all of them. So these guys are still around. That would be a good use for them to send them to do this dirty work at the wall. Uh, so let's assume Roos gives... Uh, him a few hundred of his own men or the phrase or whatever because Roos wants Shireen dead to end the Baratheon threat as we've already said so this is in his best interest in general Roos maybe doesn't want to fully support Ramsay there's all these kind of hidden power dynamics that we talked a lot about in, in episode one but as long as their interests align Roos is not going to hesitate to do what needs to be done that kind of leaves us with Ramsay though doesn't it I mean with versus what's left of the watch Melisandre yeah. and Queen Selyse and a few queensmen and a bunch of angry, stirred-up wildlings who are preparing to go fight Ramsay himself. So uh, basically, yeah. <laughs> a whole bunch of people, uh, kind of a of weird interests aligned against the against the Boltons, I guess, outnumbered but still aligned against against a united enemy. Yeah, Im- imagine their surprise. They're preparing to go south to fight Ramsay, and then John was going to lead them. We know what happened there. That got you know diverted. Uh, so now Ramsey just shows up at the wall anyway. Hey, how about that? <laughs> that would be, uh, to quote Vargo Hote, that would be very amusing. But it does raise other questions, which we suppose can only be answered by a John or Melisandre chapter in the next book. Yeah, did, one of the questions that comes up is, did men loyal to John go after the men who stabbed him? Uh, Dolores Ed and Iron Emmett are away, but there are others around Castle Black that are still loyal to Jon Snow. Yeah, like consider, say, Leathers, the wildling turned Night's Watch master at arms. One of the He's one of the best fighters currently at the Wall, I think. Yeah, and you also have Satin, um, 
who would be treated much worse if not for John. Uh, and he at least knows how to fire a crossbow as well. True that. And there are so many others, really. Obvious supporters like Gren and Pip. They're dead in the show, but they're still alive in the books. And that's what counts, right? And ones who are important. Characters who are, have a loyalty kind of uncertain. Right? The Night's Watch best archer, Ulmer, formerly of the Kingswood Brotherhood. That's a, 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 he's an important character as far as um, what side he takes and, and lending his support. Uh, he could certainly pick off a few people. <laughs> what about Tormund Giantsbane? He made his deal to come through the wall with John. He didn't make it with the Night's Watch in general. Uh, that might be a problem that we made our deal with, with Lord Commander Snow, not with Bowen Marsh, not with uh, Offel Yarwick or any of these other folks. That might be a point of conflict. They may all of a sudden feel free to do whatever they want. And with the Queen's, out num- Queen's men outnumbered and the Watch in disarray, the Lord Commander obviously not there, it could go bad quickly uh, with or without Ramsay uh, or any other Bolton army or Freys showing up regardless. And here's an even bigger wild card. What about 1-1? One, one? The giant, for that matter. You know, the last time we saw him, he had taken a nasty but seemingly non-fatal wound from Sir Patrick, the man he was kind of throwing back and forth um, Yeah, uh, in, in A Dance with Dragons. Right, like, you're right. And then there's also Alisanne Mormont, who we just mentioned. She went, is going with Sir Justin Massey to go to the wall. At what point will she arrive? And at what point, what state will the wall be in? Uh, all signs point to chaos, really. <laughs> so if Ramsey and or Roos were to arrive there, they might actually find a, kind of just a mop-up operation. They could just be like, all right, well, you guys are, well, let's let's set things right here, take what we want, and... Get the heck out of here. It might actually be pretty easy for them. Yeah, it's uh, the Queen and Sir Axel both seem to approve of the marriage of Alice Karstark to Sigorn, uh, the Magna of Then, as they know that Stannis had a stated goal to settle the wildlings in the, in the gift. So, will the Boltons have anything to say about this marriage? The marriage rites were performed by Melisandre, which could serve as a reasonable premise for nullification uh, if he wants to go that route. Yeah, but the thing is that Roos is kind of a, like, actually kind of similar to Stannis, he's a pragmatist at heart, and that pragmatism would probably come to play here. If Alice and the Thens pay him homage, he'll likely treat them like any other vassal. Um, in fact, this is kind of becoming a pattern for Roos Bolton. He, as a in his position as Lord, uh, as Warden of the North, uh, he uses multiple options and advantages in order to uh, adv- advantage the situation towards him in any way possible. Now, if any hostility develops from the Wildlings in general, it would fall to the Warden of the North to deal with it. That's their job. You, that's kind of the the, the the title comes with the title description. There, you have to handle these sort of things. So, what Roos Bolton in general? will do about the wildlings is an interesting open question. I, you know, it's his job to handle them. Will he kind of let them do what they want to do? Will he try to bring them in line? Will he attack them? This is further muddled by the fact that the Thens are no ordinary wildlings. John explains this to Alice Karstark. Different, she said, but more like us. Aye, my lady, the Thens have lords and laws. And then he thinks to himself, they know how to kneel. Yeah, it really seems like that Roos would want Carhold as an ally... And those 200 Thens that Sigorn brought are pretty brave soldiers and not those crazy cannibals like the TV show portrays, by the way. <laughs> now, furthermore, uh, Roos should have no reason to suspect Alice Karstark as a, a, for, a, uh, for a betrayal because she's the daughter of the man executed by Rob Stark. She, the, Car, the Karstarks are supporting Roos already, although it's a different faction of Karstarks in this Alice Karstark Fen group. There's also the Arnolf Karstark. Uh, faction that has a lot of the soldiers but we'll get to them a little bit later but 
just because these two factions are opposed to each other doesn't mean they're one of them is opposed to Roos. So Roos should have, again, shouldn't have a lot of reason to suspect her, uh, especially if she swears loyalty. And the Thens also. It's not like they're Stark supporters or something. They come from farther north than the... They're far... They, they live farther north of the Wall than, Car, than the Carhold is south of the Wall. So they live really far. I mean, they're probably as far from from Winterfell as River Run is <laughs> when, uh, you know, their, their valley. It's hard to be sure about that, but wow. So, yeah, no, it's, it's probably, it's, it's a pretty big distance. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like, even if Roos did perceive a threat from the Thens or from the Karstarks, uh, he clearly has more pressing issues at hand at the moment. Right. Now, setting aside the others who are always the biggest threat looming over everything, the Stannis is still the biggest problem facing Roos, obviously. There, but there are other major problems. Uh, it's not smooth sailing for Roos. Even if he beats Stannis, uh, he would still have other problems. Uh, 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 this One of them, oddly, is that he would probably still have a relatively intact Frey army. Well, why is this a bad thing? Well, it's kind of a bad thing because we'd have to accept that Sir Stupid has probably survived and is, I guess, victorious in the battle. <laughs> But he's only one man, or the point, only one mouth. Remember that a major problem at Winterfell for Roos was that he had too many men, a problem of supply that got made worse a whole lot more by the fact that many of these soldiers wanted to kill him, or each other, or his son, or pretty much anyone around them that wasn't a part of their house. (laughs) Now, obviously, uh, a a victory, a Frey army returning victorious with, say, Stannis' head on a pike or something, is a good thing for him, but again... The negative side effect of he's back in the same position he was before the battle. Too many mouths to feed. Yeah, and not to mention the fact that the Freys are still utterly despised and hated by the North. Uh, a whole lot, And a whole lot less of them are needed by Roos at this time. Right. The initial reason he needed them, the original, initial reason they went North, for the most part, of course there's always, well not always, there's often more reasons than just the obvious one. But the obvious one is is still very much in play here. He needed these troops to help fight Stannis. That was part of the idea. Uh, and so what's he going to do with them afterwards is a big open question. We mentioned sending them up to mop up the wall, taking out Shireen and Solis maybe. But really, given the state of the wall, that he'll probably just still be in the same position afterwards. The phrase probably won't lose many men there and he's still going to have these mouths to feed. Uh, and, you know, these are kind of foreigners that aren't very welcome here so that's they're kind of a bit of a liability in that sense now with the north largely in his control though an obvious move for bolton would be to return to the dread fort with fat walda and all or at least most of his men now it's possible he'll go elsewhere but the main side question, the huge side question here is will the phrase go with him i kind of think we've just answered it though well we, we have um Roos is taking so few casualties in the wars against Stannis and, and other, otherwhere, other places. Um, and winter has finally come. I think that at least a few of the phrase will probably go to the Dreadfort, uh, perhaps Sir Hostine himself. But Roos can't feed an extra 2,000 or so mouths. I mean, that's your, your food supply is just getting that much worse with winter, the onset of winter. And uh, so the rest of those phrases are going to have to go someplace else. So... If they don't wind up at the bottom of a lake, please, please, fingers crossed, there's a couple of main possibilities where they might go. Three main possibilities that we've settled on. The, f- the first one is that they just go back home. That's the simplest, and it might even be the most likely. Winter is nasty. Stannis is dead, at least in this, you know, rabbit hole that we're in. So there's plenty of reasons to leave. 
There's also plenty of reasons to stay, but that doesn't mean they will, since the reasons to leave are also very compelling. So we don't really need to go too deep into that. It's it's kind of a dead end. They go home. That's that. <laughs> right. The second option would be to, to have them go to Winterfell. Uh, this would mean that the ancient seat of House Stark is now the home of Ramsay Bolton and the phrase. This, of course, is a potential, as an if not probable, powder keg. We discussed in, you know, in part one the extreme overlap of ambition that exists between the phrase and Ramsay. Yeah, to recap in the briefest way possible, the, the phrase and Ramsay Bolton can't possibly get along in the long term, uh, especially because Ramsay is going around claiming he is the heir to the Dreadfort, and that's what the, the phrase want for the children of Fat Walda. They don't want him to get it. They certainly don't want him to have Winterfell and the Dreadfort. They want the Dreadfort to go to these children that, uh, that Fat Walda is sure to have, given Roose's view of her being so fertile. <laughs> right. If Roos leaves things like this, he's doing it on purpose, realizing that one will probably eliminate the other, and then solving the problem for him. Yeah. As we've said already, Ramsay's immediate concern would be getting back Arya. But if his father left him surrounded by Freys, who will eventually kind of turn on him, if not sooner, this might actually a bigger, be a bigger concern for him. Now, option three is... Maybe the most interesting, but maybe not very likely, uh, let alone the fact that we're already assuming a Bolton victory here, which is not necessarily very likely. Building assumptions on that is, is already fraught with peril, but we're going to continue down this rabbit hole a bit farther. So let's imagine that the Freys decide to stay in the north, despite the winter, and they can't stay at Winterfell, at least not all of them, and they can't go back to, uh, to the Dreadfort. So let's say they just... Maybe they just up and try to pry out a seat from somebody else. They just take one. Maybe it's from someone who was disloyal to Bolton. Probably not go well. The North would probably reject them wherever they go. That doesn't mean they won't try. Just like these other options, uh, we have the possibility of the phrase doing something that maybe doesn't seem like a good idea. Just because it's not a good idea doesn't mean they won't do it. Let's also not forget that Sir Hostine has a blood debt he owes House Manderley. He doesn't know that his kin went into some pies, but he is convinced Lord Wyman had them killed somehow, and he holds them responsible for the death of little Walder. So the Frey force is intact, and with Lord Bolton's blessing, which he might very well not give, to be fair, the Freys could march on White Harbor. How about that? That's a, a big one, right? This frightening possibility grows even more frightening if you imagine the phrase uh, as victors. <laughs> imagine them winning White Harbor. Oof. Picture that ugliness right there. The house fray with a baby of their blood at the Dreadfort, plus rule over the twins, River Run, and White Harbor. Ugh. That's just gross, right? Very awkward. Luckily, we're in extreme supposition territory here, i.e. we're making things up. So fear not. It's not very likely. Uh, the Freys probably don't have the strength to march on White Harbor by themselves, though. Uh, remember that Manderley told Davos that he still had quite a bit of his strength intact. But Sir Stupid might not know this. Perhaps it is more likely, then, that the Freys would try to target Lord Wyman and his men before they can return to the safety of White Harbor's walls. But another possibility is that the Freys and the Boltons attack Lord Wyman together. Bolton would probably only do this if Lord Manderley openly opposed him, which we've shown could certainly happen. But we tend to expect this to be successful. In other words, if we think if White Harbor does turn on Bolton, rather when White Harbor turns on Bolton, we expect it to work. Thus, uh, there may not be any sort of counterattack opportunity. But if not, White Harbor could be in trouble. It's fun to think about. And surely House Manderley and White Harbor remain a very important wild card. 
not just in what they will do, but in what they might have done to them. <laughs> Particular scenarios like this one may be unlikely, but the point is to imagine a range of possibilities and think beyond uh, just the basics. Now, beyond that, Bolton could find some other use for these phrases. He's awfully clever. Surely we haven't thought of everything. I don't know. We don't claim to be the strategists that Lord Bolton is. Uh, but not all his problems can be solved with soldiers. He faces more danger from intrigue than he does from force of arms, in, in a lot of ways, anyway. Uh, Rickon is still out there, something we talked a lot about in part one. And his return would, of course, if it was widely known, it would annihilate support for House Bolton. And Roos knows this. He knows that no matter how many victories he has in the field, a stark revival through Stannis and or Manderley is akin to a Bolton loss. Now, speaking of losing uh, and of the Manderleys in general, they may answer a question we have yet to ask despite so much talk about a Stannis loss. Simply put, how? How did he lose? As discussed in the last episode, Stannis must be up to something. As the army he's facing is superior and he knows that he's talked about tricks kind of in, in vague terms. Now, if it's a straight-up battle with no tricks or surprises then we shouldn't actually be surprised if Stannis loses. But it, we do expect a surprise. Everything we've talked about leads up to that. Everything we've talked points to that. So we think, and we think the Frozen Lakes again will be playing a major role. We should ask ourselves, what might go wrong with such a trap? What could go wrong with this Frozen Lake plan? Uh, one very dark yet plausible scenario comes to us from listener Gregor White. That's the color white, not the walking corpses made by the others. Uh, what if the Manderley forces rush ahead of the Frey forces in order to link up with Stannis ahead of time so they can fright the Freys together rather than, you know, stabbing them in the back like uh, Sir Hostine kind of thinks will happen? That would mean that they could be the ones to fall through the ice first. They could unwittingly spring the trap that was intended for the Freys. So that would be brutal for Stannis. Not only would he lose his trap, but he'd miss an opportunity to add soldiers to his army. Uh, so, wow, that would be, be really bad. So, by the way, shout out to Gregor White there, supporting the show in other ways. He's done, uh, he's giving us great questions, good feedback, and we've, uh, he's also given us a nice, uh, out of, out of uh, normal, uh, I don't know how to describe it, an abnormal gift that we very appreciated. Uh, we are looking at another idea for what's, what could happen with the ice trick and these men. It's easy to see how he'd lose if that trick doesn't work, if the, especially if the Manderleys are the ones who fall in it. So Stannis is clever, he's confident, and he's not daunted in the slightest. But is that enough? I mean, he's not magical, after all. R'hllor is with us, said Sir Clayton Suggs. Melisandre is not, said Sir Justin Massey. Now, if she were, if Melisandre were there, we'd have a harder time coming up with scenarios for a Stannis loss. I just really have a hard time seeing her side losing, and neither can she. <laughs> Here's what she says to Davos about the Battle of the Blackwater. Had I been with you, your battle would have had a different ending. But his grace was surrounded by unbelievers, and his pride proved stronger than his faith. His punishment was grievous, but he has learned from his mistake. See? He's learned from his mistake. Always bring Melisandre with, <laughs> with you, and left behind at the wall are not the same thing, Stannis. So I guess he didn't learn his lesson. <laughs> of course, we always have to keep an open mind when where Melisandre speaks. 
And by that, I mean she is very dangerous, but also confused and very willing to deceive. That said, she turned Veramir's eagle, once Orel's, into a fireball with wings, causing Veramir so much pain that he lost the skin changer bond with his snow bear and shadow cat. She sent him three levels down from Veramir six skins to Veramir three skins. As handy as it could be, Melisandre's magic will influence events after the Battle of Ice, not during, but someone else's might. Give him to Lord Eddard's gods, the old gods of the north. Give him to the tree. And suddenly there came a wild thumping as the maester's ravens hopped and flapped inside their cages, their black feathers flying as they beat against the bars with loud and raucous caws. The tree, one squeaked, one squawked rather. The tree, the tree, whilst the second screamed only, Theon, Theon, Theon. We took a very close look here. Prior to this, the ravens were talkative, and George R. R. Martin makes sure we take note, having thrice having them repeat something immediately after it was said, and drawing attention to it by having Stannis get annoyed two of those three times. So, is it just a matter of these ravens merely repeating Asha? Probably not, and here's why. Tree, a raven cried. Tree, tree, tree. Then the other bird said, Theon, clear as day, as Asha came striding through the door. Yeah, any, anything to do with the ravens influencing from afar should probably make us think about Blood Raven and Bran. Uh, it seems like they're paying attention, and we know what side they'll be on. And if they can influence the result in any way, Bran will surely, Bran's surely not going to side with the phrase. This is another reason to guess that Stannis will win, though how exactly is kind of is important, how they're, exactly they're going to impact the battle is interesting, but we're not entirely sure yet. Um, talking through ravens isn't going to accomplish much apart from annoying Stannis at the time. Right. So uh, a raven... Now, let's just summarize real quick what, what we've just gone through because it's a little bit confusing. So Theon's name was said by the ravens, but it wasn't immediately repeated. I'm sorry, Theon's name was said by Stannis, but it wasn't immediately repeated. Unlike all the other times, the raven just immediately repeated what was said. No one said anything about a tree until Asha did. So, summarizing, a raven starts talking about trees without being prompted, and so does and does so twice. Again, that's a sure sign we're meant to notice. And we get at the same time a reminder of the battle conditions and a hint that something mystic is happening. You have no high ground here, no walls to hide behind, no natural defenses. Yet, Stannis says, yet, both ravens screamed in unison, then one corked, and the other muttered, tree, tree, tree. So, what we can hope for is something like, I don't know, Ravens pecking out Sir Hostine's eyes, perhaps? Maybe that's too much to hope for. Not too much uh, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> well, guessing at how magic might impact this battle might quickly get us into crackpot territory. There are just too many possibilities, and right now we don't have any obvious ones. But perhaps we can expect to see something new. Yeah, well, while a Bolton victory would be decisive, uh, a definitive result would leave the remainder of the war as a mere mop-up operation. For Stannis, it would be an important and vital win, but hardly the end to his campaign either. Remember that Roos wasn't depending on these men, and in many ways they were becoming a burden, well, with all the lack of food and infighting. So the loss helps Stannis more than it hurts Roos. Let's be specific uh, and move on to the more likely outcome. Uh, so that's about it for the Bolton victory. Now we're going to talk about the Stannis victory, the bulk of our episode, and what we think to be more likely. Uh, so let's, say, let's imagine, again, put yourself back in imagination mode. You're reading the book, and Stannis is not dead this time. This time, you're imagining the Fraser beaten, Ramsay possibly captured or himself killed, and perhaps Manderly has joined Stannis at this point. But there are still big problems for Stannis. 
Yeah, even if every Frey soldier is killed in the north, Roose Bolton is still sitting behind Winterfell's massive walls, while Stannis has to deal with the storm and very little food. And even if Stannis now outnumbers uh, Roose, uh, the point is made again and again that one man atop the walls is worth ten beneath it, or even more. Sometimes the math is even is worse than that. So Stannis probably doesn't outnumber Bolton, but even if he did, he would have to really outnumber him to be able to make a frontal assault on Winterfell. But a little more on that later. Well, the thing, too, is, is that if Manderly turns on the Boltons as we expect him to in the Battle of the Crofters Village, uh, he could alleviate the food problem, at least temporarily, since uh, Manderly has a number of, of food stores and has easy access to supply from White Harbor. Um, Lord Wyman was told that Stannis' army is starving by Roose Bolton, actually. So knowing this, he could easily have sent men off with extra provisions or perhaps sent ravens down to White Harbor. Very good point. And also, we need to consider uh, the possibility of the, what the clansmen are thinking. Remember, the morale of these armies and, and the goals of some of the elements of both of the armies are changeable and not necessarily always aligned. So, for example, big important one, do the clansmen still care about Winterfell now that Ned's girl is safe? Well, at this point, they still haven't abandoned Stannis by the Theon Winds of Winter chapter, and they should know by then. They are still motivated, so. The wolves insisted. Roose Bolton could not be suffered to hold Winterfell, and the Ned's girl must be rescued from the clutches of his bastard. So they accomplished the latter. Well, so we think. So they think. But there is still the former. They want Winterfell out of Bolton's hands. Yes. And now there's also the likelihood that some of these clansmen, maybe even all of them, are aware that Bran and Rickon are out there. Remember, we touched on this a little bit earlier in the series. Bran encountered uh, one of the Littles, possibly the Little, the Lord Little, the equivalent amongst the clansmen, remember, uh, during that trek. So he has probably shared that info, at least with his own clansmen, if not with some of the other clans. But even with the clansmen with him, the task of taking Winterfell is still seemingly impossible. Your courage is admirable, Lord Karstark, but courage will not breach the walls of Winterfell. How do you mean to take the castle, pray? With snowballs? One of Lord Arnolf's grandsons gave answer. We'll cut down trees for rams to break the gates. And I. Another grandson made himself heard. We'll make ladders, scale the walls. And I. Up spoke Arthur Karstark, Lord Arnolf's younger son. We'll raise siege towers. And die, and die, and die. Sir Justin rolled his eyes. And don't forget that the Karstarks are trying to lead Stannis into a trap here. So the fact that they're being confident isn't really that meaningful. It could just be that they're, you know, if someone else was saying that, we could chalk them up to just being kind of dumb or naive. But the fact that the Karstarks are encouraging is possibly more uh, along the lines of, less along the lines of being naive and more along the lines of trying to lure them into this trap. Well, we should probably believe Sir Justin, though. <laughs> he's not wrong. He, he, he's not necessarily a guy that we should think of as cowardly. He's said some other things during the War Council that make him show that he's willing to get into a battle. He's not, he's not a coward, but he thinks this idea is terrible. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass.
Let's look at Winterfell. So the castle of Winterfell itself is situated on the eastern edge of the Wolfswood. And while the woods themselves don't seem to creep up onto the walls or close to the walls of Winterfell necessarily, uh, they seem about a few hundred meters or so from the cast from the uh, the woods seem a few hundred meters from the castle walls itself. Now here are some relevant facts about the castle itself. Winterfell sits roughly in the center of the north. Uh, it serves as a central point for the events in the north, both geographically and for the story. Some of the stuff we've kind of gone over already, but it's good to rehash. The structure of the castle is stone, meaning that it is almost entirely impervious to fire. Uh, unless, you know, Balerion the Black Dread or one of these other huge dragons around, the kinds that are capable of melting stone, but I don't think we're too worried about that. Yeah, the, the, the big thing is that there's two major walls that surround the castle, the outer wall and the inner wall, uh, with a moat running in between these walls themselves. And, and this is the biggest reason why the castle is so impossible to take by assault. Yeah, the, the outer wall is 80 feet high, while the inner wall is 100 feet high. So, And then there's a moat in between the two walls, making it even tougher. And this moat, however, is not fed by the same hot springs that uh, you know, are near the godswood. So that actually might make the moat a little bit worthless, because it might freeze over, kind of like the lakes of the Crofters Village, which is you know, not that far away. So it's a pretty reasonable assumption that the moat is frozen over. Now also, embedded into the outer wall, there's a narrow tunnel that winds its way through from uh, through from south to north. Bran reflects on this all the way back in his second chapter in the Game of Thrones. It's an interesting quote. He says, quote, And he knew you could get inside the inner wall by the south gate, climb three floors, and run all the way around Winterfell through a narrow tunnel in stone, and then come out on ground level at the north gate with 100 feet of wall looming over you. So what good would that do, though? Uh, they still have the second wall to deal with. Or kind of do they? Note this during Theon's escape. Quote, and perhaps the old gods were still watching over them. The drawbridge had been left down to allow Winterfell's defenders to cross to and from the outer battlements more quickly. Well, that's interesting. So, in other words, there you might think that's a little bit uncautious, but on the other hand, why would you worry about the inner drawbridge when there isn't even an army nearby? It's, it's something they could raise in a hurry if they needed to. But normally, the circumstances in a hurry when they needed to would be because an army is approaching from the outside. An army already in the inner wall, that might be, that's a whole different, uh, different ballgame. So if, it's, if that drawbridge is still down, well, Winterfell has one main gate and several smaller gates built into its walls. So let's talk about the gates briefly. So to focus on two gates specifically, the east gate is the main gate that opens towards the King's Road. Um, it faces on the east side of the castle. And then the other gate is the one we think is more interesting, and that's the Hunter's Gate, and that faces west towards the Wolfswood. It's a smaller gate, and it's the one gen facing the general direction of where Stannis' camp is. This description of Winterfell begs the question, again, that we've come up with a few times. How the hell can Stannis take it? He lacks supplies, doesn't have any significant advantage in quality or quantity of troops, and since a drawn-out siege is out, and so a storm in the castle or any direct other form of direct assault, well, what's left besides maybe this little tunnel trick, which we're not so sure about? Yeah, for that answer, we kind of have to turn to a very similar situation in the South. Uh, someone who is dealing with an equally famous, ancient, and similarly similarly formidable castle. If Storm's End is so impregnable, how do you mean to take it? By guile. Mm, that's a quote from John Connington. Castles can be built so that assault or conquest is effectively impossible, but there is no such thing as a castle immune to treachery. 
This is a particularly rich parallel, actually. Apart from Grey Castles going down to sneaky capture, we should note that at the same, roughly the same moment that Stannis might be taking Winterfell, it's about the same time he might be losing Storm's End. That's kind of cool. Yeah, and just as we wonder how at how John Connington and Aegon VI will accomplish their plot at Storm's End, we wonder the same regarding Stannis and Winterfell. So, back in the North, if you recall from Part 2, we spoke at length about the Pink Letter and who we thought wrote it. Well, regardless of which theory proves correct on the author, we think that if Stannis won the battle at the Crofter's Village, well, the letter contains potential clues as to what Stannis' plan could be. Now, this is not to say that we don't think the pink letter contains falsehoods. We, we think it contains at least several. But as John notes, there are, there's a potential for kernels of truth to be embedded in the pink letter itself. And these kernels might be end up blossoming into clues for Stannis' plans. Take, for example, the whole idea that your false king is dead. That's a quote right from the letter. Now, it could be that this is an out-and-out -out lie on Ramsay's part. Or it could be that Ramsay is telling the truth as he sees it, what he thinks is the truth. He may honestly think that Stannis is dead rather than him lying intentionally about it. Or perhaps Ramsay has been lied to by his quote-unquote friends. Right. It could be a lie from Stannis. It could be a lie from people that he trusts. Uh, but if, if it's Stannis himself, uh, there's a very compelling uh, angle here. In the spoiler chapter, we see that Stannis has captured some ravens from the Dreadfort Maester. Answer me. If we were to loose these birds... Would they return to the Dreadfort? The king leaned forward. Or might they fly for Winterfell instead? Maester Tybald pissed his robes. <laughs> now this is a huge point, really. Stannis can send a message to Winterfell with the handwriting of the Dreadfort's very own maester, who we've already seen can be coerced. I mean, just the barest suggesting the threat, the guy pissed his robes. What we didn't quote is him threatening him in other ways, and the maester just kind of caves. So, basically, the, the spoiler chapter makes a point of showing us that this threat of violence works against this Meister Tybald. This by itself may account for the pink letter. Uh, we don't necessarily mean that Stannis wrote the pink letter, don't, don't get us wrong. Uh, we're still fingering Ramsay as the probable suspect for it. Um, for that, at least for this example. Yeah. Now, it's as simple as this. Imagine Stannis has Meister Tybald send a letter to Winterfell saying that the Freys and or Karstarks have won at the Crofter's Village. Not only will, be, will Winterfell be expecting a raven regarding the battle, they would expect it to come from this very maester, because he's supposed to help the Karstarks with their betrayal. So there you have it. Everything Ramsay wrote makes sense from his perspective or angle, because he's been duped. He's not telling the truth because he believes this lie. He's, he's not telling the truth because he believes this lie. Ramsay got his own version of the Pink Ladder, basically. Um, and it would also drop his suspicions, further enabling the trickery we've, come, we've, we've suggested. Right, and even if Ramsay does remain suspicious about Stannis' death, well, his, his suspicions may have been allayed by his false evidence, or by potential false evidence, rather, that his allies could have brought back from the battlefield. A body would be ideal, but, of course, that would really mean Stannis is dead. Oh, of course, it could be a fake body somehow, but in lieu of something like that, there's a really obvious candidate which is mentioned in the letter, and that's a sword might do, perhaps Lightbringer. Yeah, and sure enough, Ramsay's next line after telling John that Stannis was dead was, quote, I have his magic sword. So we think it's very possible that this is a true statement. It could easily be a lie, but it could be that Ramsay actually has Stannis' sword, but it's part of a ploy. We'd be wrong to assume too much, because, yeah, it could be 
either way, it could be that Stannis is actually dead, but it could be just this is a great way to make them think that I'm dead. It's it's kind of actually funny to think about if you think about it. Imagine the Bolton quote unquote allies returning to Winterfell to tell Ramsay that they killed all of Stannis' hosts, and Stannis is super duper definitely dead, but um, Stannis' body couldn't be found. But not to worry, here's his sword that we just happened to stumble across, uh, stumble across when we couldn't, you know, find his totally recognizable body. <laughs> so it might cause a more intelligent or suspicious person to wonder, like maybe Roos. But Ramsay's intelligence has been called into question by those around him. Even his own father says, his blood is bad. He needs to be leeched. The leeches suck away the bad blood, all the rage and pain. No man can think so full of anger. Ramsay, though. His tainted blood would even poison leeches, I fear. Ramsay, for his part, is eager to be done with Stannis. Recall, let me march on Deepwood. After you are wed. Ramsay slammed down his cup, and the dregs of his ale erupted across the tablecloth. I am sick of waiting. So while we don't expect Roos to be easily fooled, Ramsay is another matter. Uh, a recurring theme in A Song of Ice and Fire, and in real life, to be honest, is people finding ways to believe what they want to believe, expecting what they already expect. It's the confirmation bias, if you're familiar with the rules of logical fallacies. Uh, Ramsay is extremely confident to the point that it is a flaw that even his father notes to Theon. He's not afraid of anyone, my lord. He should be. Fear is what keeps a man alive in this world of treachery and deceit. One way or another, if, Re if Stannis is believed dead by the Boltons back at Winterfell, it opens up a whole range of possibilities that can be taken advantage of. So given that Stannis might fake his own death or some other form of trickery, let's move on to the types of tricks that Stannis might have in mind for taking Winterfell. Yeah, when we were talking about Winterfell's features, we mentioned that tunnel that runs under the walls. Uh, we think it's kind of an intriguing possibility for how Stannis might actually get into the castle itself. But you might be saying to yourself, well, that won't work. The only person who knows about the tunnel is Bran. And Bran can't give advice to Stannis since George R. R. Martin last left Bran in Blood Raven's cave, and he's not exactly mobile. <laughs> or, or Kenny. Well, now, one of the weirder events we talked about a few minutes ago in Theon's Winds of Winter sample chapter is that whole Maester Tybald's caged ravens and how they were kind of talking and saying unusual things, not just repeating that was said. It's almost like something was guiding them from afar. And, of course, we're, you, know, you always want to think of Bloodraven slash Bran when something like that's happening. Yeah, so perhaps Raven Bran could magically lead Stannis and his men to the Winterfell Tunnel that runs under at least the outer wall. <laughs> Raven Bran. <laughs> yeah, that was, my, that was my little invention. <laughs> Siri, it's a new breakfast cereal. Uh, breakfast of Champions. Uh, breakfast of, <laughs> breakfast of Wargs. <laughs> yeah, Breakfast of Wargs. However, uh, though, the main issue with this plan is that it doesn't actually help Stannis all that much. If he gets to that south gate undetected, he perhaps he could reach the tunnel running underneath the outer wall, but that would still dump Stannis and his men right underneath the you know the hundred foot wall there. Uh, right. In fact, it would probably make Stannis' men sitting ducks for the potential of enemy arrow crossfire coming from archers on both the inner and the outer wall of uh, of the the castle walls. All those, uh, rather, and even if Stannis were to consider this tactic, Northmen familiar with Winterfell's defensive structure would probably caution Stannis not to follow the magical talking ravens. So while it's maybe far-fetched, it's not impossible-fetched. Yeah, a different non-magical idea we particularly like is the whole theory that Stannis will use Frey and or Karstark's surcoats to infiltrate Winterfell. 
All those dead phrase might prove a second use to Stannis, really. If Stannis were to say, have his men put on Frey surcoats and then march back to Winterfell with the Manderleys, well, that would be something. <laughs> they could fish the dead phrase out of the lake and take their surcoats, normally the dead, especially the dead on the losing side of a battle, well, they wind up with huge holes in their surcoats, uh, bloody, you know, corresponding to the spear, sword, slash, axe blow that killed them. But people who drown, on the other hand, well, their clothing is completely intact, thankfully. But there's kind of an issue with the with that plan. Um, the Freys who rode out from Winterfell are fairly well known back in the castle itself. So these frauds, or these Baratheon frauds, could be ID'd by those Bolton guards guarding the, ga the gates and the walls. And even if they make it past the gates... One of Stannis' men could slip up. The whole ruse could come be over before they could open the gates and let the rest of Stannis' armies in. So there's there's a lot of problems possible here, but there's a lot of things that could go wrong. But yeah, there are there are a number of things that could go wrong. But that said, if the gate is open long enough, taking control of the gate and the castle of Winterfell um, would be a crucial part of the plan. So even if the Bolton forces catch on, it might be too late for them to do anything about it. And that's kind of a major point favoring this plan. The infiltrating force doesn't have to keep the deception up for long. They just need a proverbial foot in the door. There are other ways around this early detection, ways to make more certain the deception holds for long enough, most notably the Karstark option. Now recall in Theon's sample chapter that Stannis has nipped the Karstark rebellion in the bud by imprisoning the Karstark leaders as well as their own men before the battle could kick off between Stannis and the Freys. With the Karstarks neutralized, Stannis may see an opportunity. Though the phrase might be well known in Winterfell, the Karstarks are probably not as well known by those at Winterfell itself. Um, Ramsay Bolton and Hother Umber are really familiar with Arnolf Karstark as they met him early up in the Dreadford in A Dance with Dragons. Um, but the remainder of the common soldiers and even the Karstark extended family are likely unknown to anyone save the Karstarks themselves. Right. Uh, so we have the, the, with that in mind, we think that Stannis having some of his men down in Karstark surcoats, attempting to interf, inter, inter, infiltrate Winterfell is far more plausible. Now, even cautious Roos could be fooled into thinking this Karstark betrayal succeeded. He does, that's certainly what he expects. It's what he expects to see. He yeah. <laughs> no, totally. And Stannis knows that Roos doesn't know he sniffed out these betrayers. And surely it's occurring to him that he can turn the tables. A successful uniting of Stannis to Manderley could allow the Manderley forces to play a role pretending to be part of a victorious army. They could display any number of trophies heads, apart from the major one, Lightbringer. Heads on pikes will look like heads on pikes. They'll assume that these are dead Stannis' men, dead Queen's men, dead clansmen. Uh, and if they're carried by Karstark and Manderley men and wearing Frey surcoats... It's a damn good plan, really. Yeah. So uh, it, it might actually happen. I mean, the, it, the thought of Boltons fooled by their own ruse, 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 right? That's a pun, <laughs> pun in there somewhere. We With fake posters. heads, yeah, I, I can't resist them, right? With fake heads, uh, a la Davos, Bran, and Rickon, well, that's just rich. I love that. The, another possibility, though, one that could work in concert with the surcoat idea or the tunnel idea, involves allies and betrayals on the inside. Lady Arya's sobs do us more harm than all of Lord Stannis' swords and spears. If the bastard means to remain Lord of Winterfell, he had best teach his wife to laugh. What Lady Dustin is saying there is that Ramsay's mistreatment of fake Arya is a big enough issue that it could cause defections or betrayals. She might even be talking about herself as a possible betrayer. She's not stupid, after all. I mean, she has no real blood ties to House Bolton. It's not like she's kind of locked in with them. She just hates the Starks. That's why she's 
you know, supporting them. Uh, so if Bolton's cause falters, she will not hesitate to bend the knee, especially if the alternative is death or losing her seat at Barrowton. A new question arises regarding the treatment of fake Arya. Now that she's escaped, how do these troubled bannermen feel about the situation? It can't look good that she ran off, especially given how Ramsay abuse, Ramsay's abuse of her is pretty widely known. Maybe Roos can spin it so that it appears Arya was kidnapped rather than fleeing on his own. Or maybe he can manage to you know, cover up the entire escape. It's certainly the kind of deception he's familiar with. Uh, he's certainly the kind of guy who likes to control the information. Obviously, he's doing that with Brandon Rickon. Burn the body, Roos Bolton ordered, and see that you do not speak of this. I'll not have this tale spread tale spread, nonetheless. Now, we don't know if the tale of Arya's escape with Theon has spread, but it's certainly some guards witnessed it, and it's not the kind of thing they're going to keep quiet on. Uh, no matter what, whether the, the story leaks or not, it's certainly not a, this whole thing certainly is not a plus for Bolton, any way you look at it. No, it's, it's really not. In part one of the series, a major focus of what we were talking about was the politics and loyalties and how certain elements of both sides of the army are not fully reliable. Uh, Roos is juggling a lot of lies, not just fake Arya. Um, there's a number of other ones as well. And a lot of his men are only loyal to him because of the threats that he's made, some direct and some not so direct. Um, an unraveled lie or a removed threat could change the picture very quickly for Roos. This is a major factor inside Winterfell, as a betrayal could take the form of, say, opening the gates to Stannis, or killing Roos, Ramsay, or both. In terms of who might betray Roos, we'll take your pick. Uh, there are so many possibilities. It's, it's, you know, we've gone over most of them. It's, it's hard. To, we don't want to rehash them all. But in general, he's married to a Southerner, so really the Freys are the only trustworthy house around. The northern, none of the Northerns have blood ties to him, and so, certainly none of them love him. We know that. So we'll focus on the most dangerous and the most likely uh, to betray, keeping in mind that the lesser threats could join in. It could be a snowball effect, you know, a domino effect. That once, once things get going, there's these unknown own numbers of Tallhearts, Serwins, and Hornwoods, all President Winterfell, and, and other people. Somewhat leaderless, but surely capable and probably quite willing to join in the betrayal of House Bolton, but they're not going to be the ones to start it. They need someone else to take the lead. Yeah, in, in part one, we point out that acting Lord Horsebane Umber is with Bolton in Winterfell, but his brother, Crowdoof, is helping, is helping Stannis. Again, this isn't a split loyalty situation. Rather, it's because the Great John is a captive at the Twins and would face execution if Horsebane misbehaves. It could be, though, uh, changing gears a little bit from what we talked about in part one, it could be, though, that he was a captive at the Twins. He hasn't escaped. No, we were not saying anything like that. But the situation may have changed. Well, interestingly enough, we have a Jamie Lannister appearance here in this episode. We have other matters to consider. When you return to the Twins, please inform Lord Walder that King Tommen requires all the captives you took at the Red Wedding. Sir Walder frowned. These prisoners are valuable, sir. His grace would not ask for them if they were worthless. Frey and Rivers exchanged a look. Edwin said, My lord grandfather will expect recompense for these prisoners. And he'll have it, as soon as I grow a new hand, thought Jamie. We all have expectations, he said mildly. We had said that he hasn't escaped, but moving a prisoner means taking him out of the dungeons, which at least opens up the possibility of escape. As Jamie can attest, a lot can happen on the way from the Riverlands to King's Landing, and Brendan Blackfish, as well as the Brotherhood Without Banners, are out there. And at least Blackfish fought alongside of the Great John. Right, so he, if he gets wind of this, well, 
he's going to want to act, I would think. But the obvious problem here, though, is that even if the Umbers learn of it, which they might not, uh, they would still have to worry about Great John being executed for his family's support of Stannis, right? Maybe, but they don't have to openly support Stannis. Killing Roose would certainly help Stannis, but if they don't take up arms for Stannis, well, it might be enough to keep the Great John alive. Also, nothing is stopping any Umber from taking action behind the scenes. Like the old saying goes, what the Iron Throne doesn't know won't hurt the Great John. As usual, though, Roose knows this too, telling Theon, the Umbers may seem simple, may seem simple but they are not without a certain low cunning. Well, we've seen some of this low cunning on display already. We've got the, you know, the horns at night, the, the pits being dug outside. Uh, they're being, you know, uh, Crowdoof was there to collect Theon and fake Arya, etc. So it's worth noting that the Great John is the only Northern Lord left in captivity. All the others have either been ransomed or set free or died. It's it's worth noting uh, that this is, or rather, we should assume that this is by design. The Umbers are a particularly important house to keep in line, and Roos realizes this based on the temperament and history of House Umber. They are a particular uh, risk to rebel against his authority. Yeah, this is a, the house that declared Rob Stark King of the North, and Great John specifically. Um, it's the house that suffered the most from wildling raids from over the centuries and from winter itself. They don't call it the last hearth for nothing. Um, anyone who can survive these conditions, anyone whose ancestors going all that going back, who knows who knows how long they have they've done the same. Well, those are the people who you want to fight on your side. And Roos has paid particular attention to this. Yeah, it's really uh, particularly amazing that the Umbers are so much of a threat. Actually, if you really really get down to the details here, uh, we have this line: "The Great John took too many. Half our harvest is gone to seed for one of arms to swing the sides." And when Aester Aemon sent ravens to all the lords of the realm asking for help against the king beyond the wall, Mance Raider, the Umbers were unable to respond. And they were instrumental in defeating the last king beyond the wall, Raymond Redbeard, back in 226, about 75 years before the main events of the series. And this all took place under the drunken giant, Harmon Umber. So let's summarize that real quick. We have a house that is extremely staunch for the wall that cannot help in the greatest hour of need. Yet they're still a threat to Roos Bolton despite this lack of manpower. That's kind of interesting, huh? Which, by the way, as far as their manpower, we put it at somewhere between 200 to 400. This would mean this this would be the Umber men that didn't go south with Rob Stark. Uh, likely these are so likely these are kind of the graybeards. We hear that kind of term thrown around. The guys that aren't necessarily fit to be in the army, the ones who are left behind on garrison duty. It's usually the, we hear this term a million times: the, the cripples, the graybeards, the young men, and the wounded, the infirm, all that. These are the guys who are left behind. So the Umber's force maybe isn't that all that intimidating, but still, it's being taken very seriously. No, and it is. But also speaking about White Harbor and betrayal in Winterfell, we must again think of our friend Wyman Mannerly. Um, like he's done with Davos, he's made allies where he can, even if these allies are the secret kind. So it's interesting to think about who he might be working with inside of Winterfell itself. Any of this could directly lead to Stannis getting relatively easy access to the castle. Now, instead of or in addition to the Umbers, it's uh, Manderly who could be working with Abel slash Mance Raider and the Washerwomen. Uh, now, isn't this awfully convenient? Lord Manderly had brought musicians from White Harbor, but none were singers. So when Abel turned up at the gates with a lute and six women, he had been made welcome. Yeah, Mance was supposed to go look for Arya, a, you know, the gray girl on a dying horse in Melisandre's vision. Uh, who just happened to turn out to be Alice Karstark in Longleg and not at Winterfell. Longleg is in whose territory again? 
You guessed it, Hal Sumber. This would actually be a little bit hilarious if you think about it. If Mance was guided and or helped by the Umbers while masquerading as Abel, this would be the same Umbers who demanded Mance's skull as the price of admission to Stannis himself. That's rich. <laughs> They're helping the guy whose skull they demanded because they don't know who he is. <laughs> but then again, their goals do kind of align in this case. It's funny. They may not have been willing to work with him if they knew who he was, but because he's in disguise, it works out. So th this is the whole thing. It might be a stretch for them to work together, but if you think about it this way, it might actually happen. And it's fun to consider regardless. Now, if you like Mance as the author of The Pink Letter, and we're, we're still open to that idea, even though it's not our number one pick necessarily, consider what having Wyman Manderly as an ally does to this situation. What, not that Mance needs help to act boldly. He does that on his own. He's just that kind of guy. But if he did have allies, it would explain a lot about what he's doing in there. Like, what, you know, he's, he's got something going on, and it doesn't necessarily add up with his goals. So a lot of, a lot of, a lot of things to think about. Yeah, and you also have to consider that how Manderly might have, may have worked with Manson able to pull off the murders and sabotage inside of the castle of Winterfell. Uh, we can't even assume that the stables that allegedly collapsed did so because of the snow, for instance. Right, in that case, there was a guy whose head was caved in, and um, Brand Ross, I think, was the first I saw to, to postulate that this guy caught whoever was sabotaging the stables, and that's why he was murdered. Because the murder was carried out differently. His head was smashed in, where the other cases were guys thrown off the wall walk, or you know, there's different, different kind of things that happened. This, this one was a little more blatant. Uh, anyway, Mance's own goal is either to rescue Arya, or something that we haven't thought of, his own goal with regard to the wildlings. So what he's doing is causing great tension, disunity, and weakening morale. Uh... He's So it makes sense that he's working with somebody else because all these things are happening. But we know he's not working with the Boltons with the phrase. That's for sure. And there just aren't a whole lot of other possibilities. He's not working with the Sirwins and the Tallhearts or whatever, even though those guys may have similar goals to him, because those guys don't have leaders. He's working with somebody that has... He's working with somebody important, somebody who can make things happen. Uh, so if we look at that list of possibilities, it's a pretty short list, and Alain Manderly is really at the top of it, most likely. Yeah, this is extra compelling because no Manderly men were killed out of all of the mysterious deaths at Winterfell during A Dance with Dragons. But there is one major flaw with this theory, uh, a fly in the ointment, so to speak. Houses such as Manderly's, uh, and, and really all the Northerners, it's important to point out again that guest right is taken seriously throughout Westeros, but it's particularly taken seriously in the North. It's more sacred there than it is in the South, and even the South takes it seriously. And we're familiar with how guest right shields the guest from any harm from the host. But the other side of the coin precludes guests from harming their hosts. In fact, it might be even worse. Here's Lord Commander, here's Lord Commander Mormont after Craster is slain. The gods will curse us, he cried. There is no crime so foul as for a guest to bring murder into a man's hall. So, how are Wyman Manderly and the other Bolton, or rather anti-Bolton Northmen, able to shed blood while under a Bolton guest right situation. Well, Lord Wyman did something interesting in A Dance with Dragons in that he trucked in a shitload of food from White Harbor. It's easy to think that this was simply to feed his men at Winterfell, but yeah. it's, uh, you know, might not be. Right. Roos points out, Lord Wyman likes to eat. You may have noticed. And it could just be that simple. However, we think that Wyman's overly large shipment of food could have a secret motive. Uh, Wyman is consciously staying within guest right at Winterfell 
so that when the Manderleys start knocking off Freys and the Boltons within the castle, they'll be within the sacred laws. They won't have violated them. Because they haven't taken bread or salt from Ruth Bolton's table. They brought their own food. Now, he's shown himself a man who takes these laws very seriously. So we have to think he's considered it. Before having Rhaegar, Simon, and Jared Frey murdered for pie meat on the road to Barriton, Lord Wyman makes sure he's followed the rules, as he tells Davos. Check this out. The Freys came here by sea. They have no horses with them. So I shall present each of them with a palfrey as a guest gift. Do hosts still give guest gifts in the south? Some do, my lord, on the day their guest departs. Perhaps you understand, then. Yes, guest gifts signify the end of a stay, thus the end of guest right. And in this case, the end of some of the phrase lives. <laughs> right. So now whether there's anything to this, we'll, we'll call it the guest right conspiracy, uh, GRC. Hmm, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? So we can be sure Manderley is going to be is going to make some moves, even if it's not this particular move. The pies were not the end. Uh, surely there are other courses to be served. Yeah, in general, these moves will likely be targeted at the phrase, but also there should be plenty directed at the Boltons as well. Ramsey is a prime target, but Papa Bolton might not be around. Um, earlier, we gave reasons for Roos to leave Winterfell, and if you mix it back to the Dreadfort, any hopes of catching him are gone. He'll only leave if things are going really, really well. If not, you will hole up in a place that's described as... A strong castle with thick... Uh, all of stone with thick walls and massive towers. With winter coming, you will find it well provisioned. Centuries ago, House Bolton rose up against the king in the north, and Harlan Stark laid siege to the Dreadfort. It took him two years to starve them out. If Stannis is beaten, the strength of the Dreadfort won't come into play at all, but if Roose is tricked or forced ahead there, it becomes quite important. So those who don't, or rather those who do want Bolton out of the picture would best work on that before he gets home to his strong castle. Because if, if they don't catch him at Winterfell or out in the open, that's preferable. Then, you know, if they don't do that, they're not going to get him, uh, quite possibly. So first, let's consider Bruce Bolton's movement. We'll look at geography for a minute. Uh, we'll, we'll take a look at his movement back to the likely route he'll take. Yeah, to do that justice, um, to look at the, uh, the geography, we need to look at the route. And the first thing we have up is the White Knife itself. Right. The White Knife is a long river which throws, flows through much of the north into the Bight at White Harbor. Uh, it's the longest river in the north. It might be the longest river in Westeros. We don't have exact measurements for these things. But uh, it flows from north-south from two <laughs> forks, one in the northwest and the other in the northeast. It splits south of Winterfell, and its forks flow east and west of the castle. Uh, prior to this discussion, prior to the episode, we discussed Wyman Manderley's hidden men up the White Knife. This is where they could come into play. Like Stannis, he's not going to do anything silly like a frontal assault. But any attack more complicated than a frontal assault would require a strong leader to command the forces present. Yeah, Re-enter Robert Glover. The last time we talked about Robert Glover, he was hanging out with Wyman and Davos in the, in the Wolf's Den. Afterwards, he disappears from the narrative. Some have speculated that he's the hooded man at Winterfell, but we have another idea in mind. First and foremost, Robert Glover is a soldier and a pretty decent commander to boot, famously seizing Harrenhal from the Lannisters during the War of the Five Kings. So Robert has the command chops to lead the Manderly Force of Knights, having been an able commander under Robb Stark's Rebellion. As an added bonus, Robert served under Roose Bolton, so he knows how the man operates militarily. But regardless of who actually leads the Manderly Force, they could cut the Boltons off during their march back to the Dreadfort. This is a really interesting uh, potential here. 
Yeah, Roos dying here would be a pretty major event in the event that the Manorleys cut the Boltons off heading back to the Dreadford. Um, but escaping this would be pretty major too, as he would find himself in a fairly desperate position, something we actually haven't seen Roos Bolton experience before. Right. Now, destroying much or all of his army would be about as bad for him, maybe worse, than Rickon returning. But uh, interestingly, if Davos successfully does successfully return with Rickon, an outward assault on Bolton becomes a lot more likely, because now they know, now they have another leader to get behind. Manderly would need help, though. He's not going to uh, be able to do this on his own. Despite the manpower he held back, I don't think he's still a match for Roos alone. No, and without Rickon, Lord Wyvern would has to play it safe because there are too many Northerners siding with Bolton over Stannis. But with Rickon in hand, Manderly can openly oppose Bolton rule. Now, if this happens, surely Wyman won't just approach Roos and say, hey, we're switching sides. He will make switching sides count. He will use it to his advantage as much as possible, taking advantage of the element of surprise. Now, real tangential prediction, because we talked a lot about Rick and Stark getting rescued by Davos, being in Manderly's possession. Well, let's, let's go ahead and predict that right here that Rickon ends up betrothed to Wyla. Wyla, of course, is that awesome child uh, that bravely told the entire Merman's court that their duty was to house Stark. She really is an instant favorite of ours, and probably many of your guys' as well, uh, with responses like, A child's foolishness. Speak no ill of our friends afraid. One of them will be your lord and husband soon. No, the lord declared, shaking her head. I won't. I won't ever. They killed the king. Yeah, the one whom would pro supposedly be her lord and husband soon was none other than that nasty piece of work, little Lord Walder Frey, who was murdered in Winterfell. This is another clue that Manderly was involved in Abel and the Washerwoman's night murders in Winterfell. Yeah, surely Manderly or Wyman didn't actually want this wedding to take place. The betrothal was part of the deal he made to placate the Iron Throne into thinking he was loyal, but more importantly to get his son Sir Willis back from capti captivity from the Iron Throne. Yeah, rather given the possibility for another battle, we should take a closer look at Roos himself. Early in the series, we profiled the command abilities of Stannis, Hoftine Frey, and Ramsay Bolton, but we haven't done Lord Bolton himself yet. Yeah, as a strategy, Roos rarely commits himself or his forces, uh, or the Dreadford Man, to battle unless the outcome is absolutely certain. We see that in a couple key battles in the War of the Five Kings, um, the Green Fork in the Game of Thrones, Harrenhal in A Clash of Kings, Duskendale and Ruby Ford in The Storm of Swords. So, uh, cited by Catelyn Stark as a cautious, calculating man, however, reality kind of belies this image in a lot of places. He's actually more flexible than that. He's, he's shown aggression in battle, though not of himself or his own men. So it might be accurate to say he's cautious with his, with his own soldiers, but perfectly willing to take risks with subordinates sworn to other houses, houses which by utter coincidence border Bolton lands. So as far as strengths as a commander, uh, Roos is... A lot of it comes from his ability to delegate dangerous tasks, uh, basically his ability to be dispassionate, <laughs> to not have any sort of uh, sympathies. Uh, he, his cruelty allows to, you know, for corner cutting like that is a good way to put it. Just he cuts corners because he doesn't have to worry. He doesn't, he's not worried about, you know, his individual men or who survives. And he can do things like disposing of prisoners like he did at Castle Derry, just have them all killed. He's used tricks before, certainly. Uh, he's co-opted the way he co-opted the Bloody Mummers, for example, had them in, have them infiltrate Harrenhal and then taking the castle from within. So he's obviously very sneaky. We, we, no one needs to be uh, told that. No, but he also has a. But even though he might be sneaky, he has a number of weaknesses too as a commander. 
In terms of actually leading soldiers into battle, Roose Bolton has yet to be victorious where in a straight-up battle. Uh, Roos's cautious nature is actually not true, as we said earlier. Roos operates um, in a very uh, potentially aggressive, uh, intentionally aggressive way on the Battle of the Green Fork, for instance. So let's talk about how, what he actually has in terms of manpower at this point. Um, it looks like he has, we're going to guess around 4,000 men. Uh, so that's a lot, really. Uh, it's 20, 000, here's a quote. 20,000 swords and spears have gone off to war with Rob, or near enough to make no matter, but only 2 in 10 were coming back. And most of these were Dreadfort men. Ultimately, though, I think Roos is really too cautious to die like this. His army may be caught in a trap, but he always thinks of himself first. I expect he'll make it back to the Dreadfort, uh, where he may be safe from Stannis, at least for the moment. But he won't be safe from winter, which is always coming. And perhaps dying in winter will be his fate. That would be uh, maybe a bit anticlimactic, but uh, certainly a possibility. What about the fates of other major characters, though? That's something we'd like to get to as far as a summary here. What, what happened to Ramsay, for example? Uh, I think Stannis would show no mercy. I don't think the future is bright for Ramsay at all. <laughs> really? I mean, I kind of think the future could be very bright and very warm for Ramsay. The Red God is always hungry. <laughs> that kind of bright, yes. Burning him, yeah, I like that idea. I think, I think we could all get down with Ramsay being burned. You know, that's not an end I would wish on most people, but I might, even, I might be willing to do that for him. Um, and I certainly don't think he'll have any kind of role in the War for the Dawn. I mean, literally speaking, what role will Ramsay play the rest of the story if the others kind of take the forefront? Uh, what's he going to be, you know, this guy is kind of sabotaging humanity's efforts or what, or just not playing along? I don't really know. Uh, so I don't think, however, that he is a threat to get to the Dreadfort and hide out there either. His new seat is Winterfell. I think he might be kind of Vargo Hodish about it with regards to, you know, his being stubborn. You're like, this is my castle. I'm holding on to it. I'm going to go down with the ship, so to speak. And uh, I, I kind of see him going out that way. So he doesn't have the ability to hole up like his father does. He doesn't have a bunch of provisions stashed away. What about Wyman Manderley, though? I actually think he's well poised to survive and prosper. I mean, there's a lot of things hanging over his head. He might, it could work out that, that he successfully switches sides and is kind of the hero of the North, in a sense, for rescuing Rickon and, and leading the charge towards restoring the Starks and, and getting the Boltons out of power. Now, it could easily be that he accomplishes all this without surviving, though. Uh, he could put all these plans into motion and uh, see that they could come to fruition, but he may not live to see it. So we shouldn't, we shouldn't be surprised if, if that's actually what happens. Yeah, I think I'm with you, though, on that. I think that Wyman will survive, and I think that Wyman's role in the future is likely as a regent for Rickon, not as Rickon as the king, uh, but as Rickon as Lord, a warden of the north. It's likely that Stannis would probably not allow an eight-year-old child that much power um, that would come through being a warden of the north. And Wyman, if he makes that turn for Stannis in the, this first battle and the second battle, would make a pretty good fit for Rickon due to his loyalty to both Stannis and his uh, kind of tactical and strategic acumen. Now, what about Mance Raider, for example, another major character who's involved in all this? Now, I'd say that if he hasn't been tortured and flayed, that the pink letter says, then George has something else in mind for him. We've talked about how he's done his, his actions. It's hard to figure out what his goals are. Um, and, of course, the possibility that he wrote the pink letter just makes it all the more confusing and hard to pin things down. But he's also a fan favorite. He's, a, he's, kind of a, he's definitely a badass. He's got shades of Robin Hood and Braveheart all rolled into one. Uh, but... Martin has killed off plenty of these types of characters. He's killed off plenty of fan favorites, so it's not exactly something we can say, oh, he's safe because of that. No, sorry. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> yeah, you know, Mance has evaded death more than a few times in the series. Um, 
and you have to wonder, is the luck actually going to continue? And I think maybe, um, but it may not matter. If Mance has been wearing the skins of the Spearwives, as Ramsey claims, I can't imagine the same jolly Mance we knew and loved in A Storm of Swords. Um, that is, if he's not a Stark, if he's not Stark raving mad after the experience, he's probably just just a touch more cynical about human nature. I agree with that. What about though the big one? I suppose would be Stannis himself. Once again, uh, if he loses the Battle of Ice and just dies, well, that's pretty simple. We know what happens there. But if he wins and takes Winterfell while possibly killing Andor, Ram- killing Ramsay and Roose, he'll actually be looking really dangerous. Uh, he'll be looking as dangerous as he ever has. Perhaps even more dangerous than he was after getting all of Renly's bannermen. He'll have the North in hand, uh, especially if he restores Winterfell to Rick and Stark, and the backing, and he'll have the backing of the Iron Bank. That's huge. With mercenaries and Northmen flocking to his banner, the South completely in chaos again. He'll be ready. No, I, I agree with that. I think that's probably what will end up happening with, with Stannis. Um, but there's also Aegon the Sixth and the Golden Company, too, in the South. I mean, the South is just in utter chaos because you have Aegon and John Connington, the Faith Militant Reborn, the trials of Marjorie and Cersei, the Ironborn invasion of the Reach, and eventually perhaps the invasion of the true dragon, Daenerys Targaryen, and her three actual dragons. Yeah, the South... Uh, the, the, the South is no threat to him right now. Even, uh, as we saw, like, even when Stannis was beaten, the South couldn't finish him off. He was able to hole up in Dragonstone, keep Storm's End, and just kind of linger for a while because the, the South was too busy with itself, dealing with all the diff- these different claimants. Well, that hasn't changed. It, arguably, it's even more chaotic than it was early in the War of the Five Kings. There's, there's certainly uh, fewer men living. <laughs> and there's winter is arriving. The Riverlands is in flames. It's, 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 it's crazy. So... Let alone the fact that any army that wanted to deal with Stannis would have to, you know, go through Moat Kalen, which we all know is pretty much impossible. So they'd have to do some sort of naval invasion, uh, and oof, well, I mean, that's just that's just fraught with all sorts of issues, especially with the Ironborn on the loose, the Red Wine Fleet occupied. Like, how would they even? Where would they even get the ships to do this? It sell sales, maybe. Yeah. So not even Littlefinger's plan to install Sansa can can trump Rickon. That's a non like military. Potential way of, of unraveling Stannis' plans because Rickon's claim is stronger than Sansa's. Uh, Littlefinger does, is, of course, also not aware that Rickon is alive. He's under the same delusion that most people are that Rickon is dead. Yeah, and, and the thing, too, that's really kind of cool about a Stannis victory in the North is that he'll have won some victories without Melisandre. Um, it's given that Stannis is unlikely to actually be Azora High reborn, as Melisandre says, perhaps these victories and the realization that she's wrong about him will give him cause to doubt her in general and to lose confidence in her in this whole Lord of the White Lord of the Light business. Yeah, or though perhaps if he loses, uh, well we've detailed the possibility surrounding his death, but but we gloss over the possibility of him losing yet surviving. We assume that if he loses he's dead meat because of how hard it would be to escape given the mobility of the fray men versus his own mobility. But maybe he gets away somehow. Um, but as to that possibility, well, we're going to have to leave you a little bit in suspense on that one. Look out for an episode on the Night's King coming up relatively soon and how a desperate Stannis could turn deeper into dark magics. It'll be crackpotty goodness. But one last character, non-major character, she needs discussion too. Well, she may, she may herself may be minor, but her identity is not. That's the fake Arya game. We need to put a little more attention to that and we have just enough time to cover it. Recall what Stannis tells Justin Massey. 
Oh, and take the Stark girl with you. Deliver her to the Lord Commander Snow on your way to Eastwatch. Stannis tapped the parchment, the parchment that lay before him. A true king pays his debts. Pay it. I, thought Theon. Pay it with false coin. Jon Snow would see through the imposture at once. Lord Stark's sullen bastard had known Jane Poole, and he had always been fond of his little half-sister Arya. However, it might not be as simple as all that. Jon might not be able to ID her anymore. Um, perhaps Alysanne, Jane, and Justin Massey arrive back at Castle Black, and Jon is still dead. Perhaps even dead for good. But there's a more compelling possibility. Partly based on our belief that John's permanent death seems really unlikely. Uh, like many of you, we suspect that John will be resurrected somehow by Valoric magic, the hands of Melisandre, maybe he'll live on in Ghost, a la the second life concept introduced to us at the Vermeer Six Skins prologue chapter. But resurrection, as we've seen from a multiple different types of magics, it's never a clean process, not at least what we've seen so far. So with that in mind, here's a curious twist that we should consider. Yeah, one of the things about resurrection is that those who come back from the dead start to forget about their past lives, or at least seem to lose integral parts of their personality. We see this with Beric the Darien, and possibly with Cold Hands as well. In one of the sadder statements of the series, Lord Beric talks about his memory loss with real Arya and Thoros of Mir. It's hard to keep track of who real and fake Arya are. Good thing, I'm glad the real one's making an appearance in this episode where the fake one has such a big prominence. <laughs> Can I dwell on what I scarce remember? I held a castle on the marches once, and there was a woman that I pledged to marry, but I could not find that castle today, nor tell you the color of that woman's hair. Who knighted me, old friend? What were my favorite foods? It all fades. Sometimes I think I was born on the bloody grass in that grove of ash, with the taste of fire in my mouth and a hole in my chest. Are you... So could John, like Beric forget Arya's face if he's resurrected? Perhaps he'll lose a large part of his prior memories and will be unable to identify who the girl is that's thrust in front of him. It goes even deeper like, than that. Fake Arya's fate is not so simple. Even if Jon's memory is in good working condition, he might see things the way that Theon did. Uh, quote, he told her that she must be Arya or else the wolves might send him back. Jane is the next thing to a whore. You must go on being Arya. He meant, no, he, meant, he, he meant no hurt to her. It was for her own good and his. She has to remember her name. John would doom Jane Poole by exposing her, basically. If he outs her as a fake Arya, she's toast. She's worth it. She's got no one to help her. So by allowing others to continue to think she's Arya, he also might be outing the real Arya who's hiding somewhere. He doesn't know if she's still alive somewhere, and as long as some fake girl is hanging around taking the, the torment that would be his sister's, well, that's probably a better situation. Uh, now, he, and he's also kind of stubborn about such things. Like, he, he was pretty stubborn about admitting that Benjit was probably dead, so he's probably not willing to admit that the real Arya is dead. Yeah, he's, he's given us some insight as to what he might do with the real Arya, thinking, quote, the best solution he could see would, would mean dispatching her to Eastwatch and asking Cotter Pike to put her on a ship to some place across the sea beyond the reach of these quarrelsome kings. And he might decide to do uh, that that is the same, or that's the, that the same is true, rather, for Jane. Uh, fleeing is best, as he decided with Craster's son. He also does not want to see Ramsay Bolton as a legitimate lord of Winterfell. But what's a dead guy going to do about that? So it's, it's kind of hard to predict what John is going to do. when he, We don't even know what John is. Yeah, but as interesting as important as it is, the question of fake Arya pales in comparison to the one that's been looming over Westeros since the prologue of the first book. 
As the Battle of Fire sets up Danny's invasion in the, uh, of Westeros in the south, so does the Battle of Ice set up the other's invasion in the north. As humanity weakens itself through infighting, the cold winds are rising, gaining in strength. Throughout A Song of Ice and Fire, the folly of war in the face of a greater common enemy has become apparent. Others must surely be laughing, and we know they can. They laugh in that prologue chapter. As their return has been foreshadowed since that first epilogue. Mankind is making it easier on them by leaps and bounds and giving them fresh soldiers in the process. I can see the meme now. Thanks for the very generous supply of corpses, Westeros. A huge impending problem that, that few have turned their attention to, especially in the South. They prefer to fight each other and kill each other in pursuit of the Iron Throne. The only real notable exception, of course, is Stannis. Stannis came to the North to fight the new battle for the Dawn, but first he must win the Battle of Ice. At least he seems to have the good, he has the right god for the job. Relor be praised. But regardless of who wins the Battle of Ice, though, the others will benefit. There will be fewer men to stand against them and corpses to, re to animate. So much white, I can't even. <laughs> for fun, picture Stannis as a white. He'd be even, I think he'd be even less stubborn. <laughs> or what about Sir Richard or Sir Godry? Stannis has no Kingsguard, but these would be his, wait for it, White knights. Oh, <laughs> fucking dead pun, in other words. Whites. But seriously, though, whites who are who, who rise wearing full plate mail, that's actually, or with their horses possibly armored as well, riding undead horses, that's a lot more difficult. That's a whole other level of, of hard to deal with than your, what the whites we've seen so far who mostly just have rotting clothing, rotted leather. They're just, oh, maybe they've got a little bit of armor, but nothing like full plate mail. Yeah, that's no joke. Whites are hard enough to kill as is, and armor can protect them from catching fire, potentially. Uh, the large number of dead horses may come into play as well. What about Wyman Manderley as a white? Lord, or is he Lord too fat to be a white? <laughs> what about Frey whites? That's that's almost too, too disturbing to consider. There's enough of them already without them coming back to life. And we like, Can you really hate the Freys any more than we do already, making them into you know walking corpses that just... just that's just piling on. Well, you know, Ramsey Snow would be some sort of bad triple crown winner if he came back with those white blue eyes. You know, <laughs> even if he does come back as a white, Planetos is better off with, with him in this with him in this form than he's alive. He's probably even less evil than in, in white form. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Yeah, it's another guy that is improved by being made into a white. <laughs> Roos himself as a white is kinda hard for me to imagine personally. How so? As is common knowledge, Roose Bolton is an immortal vampire using other face magic to... Um, I, I can't keep a straight face. <laughs> Go on. Sorry. <laughs> uh, of course, referring to the Roose as a vampire theory that uh, I personally think is a little silly, but it's fun. And even the silly theories are fun. So, anyway, he's not meant to... Roose is not meant for shambling mindlessly. He's meant for higher brow work, like, like providing us with great ending quotes. <laughs> Ones that summarize our expectations for the Battle of Ice as well as for our wait for the Winds of Winter itself. Bruce himself. I am sorry that our good friend Stannis has not seen fit to join us yet, as I know Ramsay had hoped to present his head to Lady Arya as a wedding gift. We shall give him a splendid welcome when he arrives, a welcome worthy of true Northmen. Until that day, let us eat and drink and make merry, for winter is almost upon us, my friends. And many of us here shall not live to see the spring. That's all, folks. That's, that concludes our Battle of Ice series. Hope you all enjoyed it. Uh, certainly enjoyed having Jeff on as a guest. We had a few technical problems, but I think it was well worth it. 
and uh, we will look forward to maybe doing some episodes with you in the future, Jeff. Certainly, stuff along the lines of battles. That's uh, certainly your you, your your uh, commitment and your uh, things that you've added to the Song of Ice and community, uh, Song of Ice and Fire community are, are broad, but you seem to have a particular expertise in these battle scenarios, and that has really uh, played out well over the some roughly six hours of battle-like <laughs> discussion that we've put together here. A lot, a lot of, a lot of good stuff. So. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for you know having me, and it was a lot of fun to do this. And I, you know, like I said at the beginning, for the Q and A, if we do a Q and A session on on this episode on this uh, this subject, I'd be happy to come back with you guys. And also, any military stuff you guys want to talk about in the future, it's kind of my forte. So yeah, and, and of course, hang out with you. Speaking about the Q and A, you know, we what we we might do some variations on that theme. Sometimes we'll maybe just have. Obviously, if we do anything Battle of Ice Q&A oriented specifically, we would love to have you along. But in, in general, when we do some of these other Q&A episodes, you know, this is just kind of brainstorming here. We we could, you know, have roundtable discussion type things like we kind of had way early in our existence as History of Westeros where we just get a few people who are knowledgeable and let you guys ask us questions and, and throw them out. Some people will have more ready answers than others. We may, we may have some things to debate, and that, that could be a lot of fun, so... Yeah, totally. Uh, that would be, you know, we've kind of, uh, as we, we've already worked with you, so it would be easier to bring you in than some other people. Uh, but there's plenty <laughs> of other people out there that would be good for that. So, sure. uh, folks, if you have suggestions for people you'd like to see us have as guests for such an episode or for other ones, um, you know, check that out. Uh, so I'd rather check that out. Send us, uh, send us those suggestions, rather, either through Twitter. Uh, the great way to contact us, uh, we are History of Westeros on Twitter, or at Westeros History. You can look us up on Facebook, of course. Uh, we're just History of Westeros on Facebook, and as we move into the world of Ice and Fire, I've talked about this uh, before, and I'm talking about it more now, we're really going to make a push for putting out more episodes that's going to require a bit more support from you guys, the people who have been helping out so far, it's, it's been great, it's really helped us uh, make History of Westeros a better uh, podcast and uh, more thorough, more detailed, and, uh, we're getting more experience at it, we're learning so much, and we hope to expand on that, we hope to bring out episodes more often. And uh, one way we can continue to do that is by uh, your continued support, not just through uh, the financial means, but also through spreading the word. Uh, people who tell their friends, any of you who tell your friends about us, well, if you really like us, you know, I think the enthusiasm shines through. Personally, I, I, did, I had a short stint in sales back uh, a long time ago, and I discovered that when you're trying to sell something, quote-unquote, if you honestly believe in what you're selling whether it's if, if you like it, like if you're trying to tell your friends, I really like this movie, your friends realize that your enthusiasm is genuine. Some people are good at just making that up and pretending to be enthusiastic, but obviously we're not, we're, we're not those types of people. We're not, we're not here <laughs> <laughs> trying to, you know, get rich off of a Song of Ice and Fire podcast, and that's kind of silly, so. <laughs> anyway, thanks again to Jeff. Thanks again to Brand Ross. Thanks again to everyone who tuned in live uh, we'll be doing the live recordings. I think that'll be a matter, of course, in general. We, we have fun doing the live recordings. It also gives us a little bit more uh, freedom with a few things, and we're going to be experimenting a bit more with some of these features that the live recordings give us. There's a lot of cool tools we haven't even looked at yet. Um, also, if you guys have suggestions, uh, something I brought, I brought up earlier, the whole notion of us signing up uh, for Patreon. Some of you guys don't even know what I'm talking about when I mention Patreon, but if you do, or if you have other websites that you're aware of that do content hosting uh, that provide uh, abilities for um, people to, you know, submit their own level of support. 
Uh, send us ideas. We're, like I said, Patrain is the one we're looking at the most, but there's other ones out there. We may not have even heard of some of them. So we do rely a lot on your feedback and, and your um, criticisms as well, <laughs> both constructive and not constructive, uh, although we tend to listen to the constructive criticism a lot more than the non. But even the non-constructive criticism occasionally has some value. Like, uh, like the pink letter, there's, sometimes there's kernels of truth even amongst what we think is uh, you know, just uh, noise. But, well, you know, <laughs> people who just say, ah, you suck. There's, there's not much to learn from that. But, uh, not really. you know, if someone is like, you know, sometimes when someone goes on a rant for a paragraph about something we did wrong, sometimes there's something in there we can learn. Anyway, thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. Look out for our overview on the World of Ice and Fire episode in just a matter of days. So we'll see you all then. Valar Morgullis. And uh, Valardo Harris. Take care, all. <laughs> <laughs>